Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina. Because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it starts now. Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. You're on. Can you not hear yourself? Try now. Good morning. You hear yourself? I do. Sorry about that. (laughs) All good. Good morning. (laughs) We have to set the feed up to go into your headphones to make it work. So welcome. Sorry about that. To Wake Up Carolina, 843-661-0937, Thursday, April the 7th. Good morning, Rev. Good morning. I would say Royal Rev, but I'm not calling you Royal this morning. You you got to sideswap me here this morning. Sorry, man. Sorry. I'm I'm talking into the microphone. I don't hear myself speaking. I freak out. Yeah. it was my voice being broadcast over the airways. It was, despite my not hearing. It was, it. yeah. I heard you. You just didn't hear yourself okay. or us. Good deal. So, and that was alarming yeah. and alerting to me. <laughs> but nobody's listening to this nonsense at six oh five in the morning, anyway. Are so you sure? We'll, we'll get better as the um as the day progresses. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of an interesting show yesterday. Um, the, the the last hour of the show. Got real busy. Express yourself to the last hour <laughs> of the show. Express myself. Well, I mean, we, we always have um, these issues mm-hmm. that are on the table, ready to be addressed. I mean, I, I'll give you an example. I'll take you behind the scenes for one second. I have in my hand one, two, three, four, five, six, seven stories. I have no idea if any of these stories will gain any traction, which one it will be. But, I mean, this will be kind of interesting for a second. Stick with me here. So the first in my stack is Governor Abbott directs Texas to send illegal migrants to D.C. on charter buses. The second in my stack of prep material is COVID, the aftermath. Um, The third is a story from the National Review about the number of Americans under the age of 65 that died from suicide and addiction as opposed to those who died of COVID. Um, The other. Senators reached $10 billion COVID funding bill for therapeutics, vaccines, and testings. Uh, here's an interesting, why are we COVID broke? Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal. Um, of course, I've got some Thomas Jefferson here. Babylon B CEO said Elon Musk called to confirm their suspension from 20 before his stake. And the last, a closer look at why J.D. Vance's stance on Ukraine is unpopular. Those are the, um, the issues that I've identified as newsworthy. Now, I'm one mere mortal. There are millions of you out there listening to what we're conversing about, conversating about um, this morning, and we'll go wherever you choose to go. Well, and when you say gain traction, you know, you said, uh, I don't know which stories may well, gain traction. S- what, what does gain traction Some mean of these stories you? may be enormously interesting to me and not very interesting to the people. I'll tell you the most interesting story in America today that nobody is talking about and probably should be talking about it. Um, the number of hedge funds in America today buying farmland is unbelievable. It's never been this way ever before. Um, there, there's a kind of a hunkering down, almost a prepping mentality. Remember Beck talks about preppers and food subscriptions, and oh, I've yeah. laughed at him. A lot him. of people call him crazy. Yeah, well, I mean, for that. other radio show hosts at times have called him a bit of a madman and a crazy man. He may be the um, the mad scientist. He may be the evil genius, so to speak. Nothing evil about him, but he may, I mean, he, he's a little bit out of the mainstream at times. Now, let me back up. He's a little bit out of the mainstream all the time. <laughs> he's way out of the mainstream um, sometimes, but I'm reading a lot now about investing 
and where hedge funds are investing their money, 70% of all farmland in America will change hands over the next 20 years. The hedge funds, I'm going to believe it or not, those who believe they make a profit are going to buy the, the family farmers out. And they're going to make enormous profits. The, the people who own family farms are going to be wealthier than they ever imagined if they'll stand pat and stay put. That's a story that I, I'm not so sure it's in the mainstream. I mean, that would be, a, I read an article in the Financial Times. That article led me to another article in Bloomberg. That article led me to a Goldman Sachs, um, kind of an internal document about investing in farmland. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, that, that's not going to gain traction. Because people would say, what the hell are you talking about? Investing in farmland? I mean, we got Hunter Biden. We got J.D. Vance. We, we've got Husher Walker running for the Senate in Georgia. We've got an election that was stolen. We'll see what to talk about farmland <laughs> and 70% of farmland. But every now and then, something very organic happens. And we, we gain information on the fly. And and when we disseminate that information over yesterday. the airwaves, it takes off in a in a way. And you've been around radio a long, long, long time. Um, that long is probably time. radio and broadcasting at its best. Am I right? I think so. That's why last hour of yesterday's show was so great. And by the way, I, mean, I guess it's a it's a programming note that we didn't do our Wednesday whiner line calls because we just got going on this subject and kept going right up to about the end of the show. But uh yeah, when something is organic like that, you mention uh, basically a news item related to a local issue, local crime, punishment, you know, things that are important to most citizens of a community. You mentioned a situation yesterday, and then the subject took off on the air, and there were enough people listening and enough people listening that don't typically call the show, that, that, are, that were new callers to the show that had a, had a strong enough reaction and feeling to what we were talking about to want to call and give an opinion. And, and I just, I mean, I think, to, again, like you said, I agree, that's radio and local radio at its best. And one of the most interesting parts of yesterday, it was, uh, it was an issue about crime. I mean, for those uh, that, that weren't with us at 9 o'clock yesterday, and many of you were not, I mean, those who were on, you know, with us early in the morning, are probably not with us at 9 o'clock. I got a tip. Here I'm here with air quotes. I got a tip uh, day before yesterday from a law enforcement agent who suggested to me that I needed to look into uh, the situation where someone um, – Recently, I think in the last four or five days, was uh, was caught on the interstates by the drug. Uh, in I don't know, they got some fancy name for this, the drug interdiction team, and um, you know they're monitoring the interstates. We know that a lot of um, drug trafficking happens on I ninety five. I ninety five runs, you know, the length of South Carolina, the width of South Carolina, the breadth of whatever, you know, however you want to twist the state, kind of a, a, a piece of pie shaped state. It runs from one end to the other, um, and the drug interdiction team. Um, arrested someone, um, that someone had $3.2 million worth of cocaine, somewhere between sixty dollars and $80,000 in cash, guns, um, some other prescription drugs, and the person was bonded out on a $50,000 surety bond. The, the law enforcement agency requested a no bond. And the we found out yesterday that the, or we think we found out, I want to make this, I mean, this is all um, reporting, you know, I don't have this confirmed. This is sourced by uh, not anonymous sources, but a sources sources I won't reveal the identity of. That a certain magistrate um, allowed this person to to be released on a fifty thousand dollar surety bond, and the the magistrate is under the directive of the chief chief magistrate, and the chief magistrate 
said, you know, let this person out on a $50,000 surety bond. And that kind of, I mean, that morphed into this conversation. The most interesting part of it to me was when we started talking about crime, we have three consecutive calls by female listeners. You know, we've always talked about um, uh, the the female, the the nurturing element of the female. I want to be careful here. I don't stereotype people. Men are innately um, inclined to be providers. That's something important to them. I think it's in our DNA. I don't care what transgenderism 101 says. We're different. I mean, there's a hardwiring. There's a genetic and, and, and biological difference in men and women. And I think women are inclined. When someone talks about safety and security of their family, women's rabbit ears, their radar comes up. It's like, oh, what, what do you mean crime? What, what do you mean uh, something happened on this road or that road or the other road? Men care about it. But we go into this kind of a, um, I'll take care of business mode. The, the female says, how do we get out of that situation? I mean, let's make sure we don't have a loved one, kid, uh, in that situation. So we began talking about crime yesterday, and we had three consecutive calls by female listeners. That was very interesting to me. Um, but, yeah, we, we, had a, we had a drug bust, $3.2 million in cocaine confiscated. Uh, somewhere between 60 and 80. I know that um, one media report says $66,000. I've had it, you know, reported to me via law enforcement. It was closer to 80,000 uh, firearm and some, uh, some other pharmaceutical products. I don't know if they were prescribed or not, or if the person uh, in possession of the prescription drugs had a prescription for those. I don't have any idea. Um, I just know they were a part of uh, the case. The story was this. We didn't really know how that worked. Is that fair to say, Rev? Nobody in our listenership had some law enforcement folks that knew how that worked, but you and I were kind of scratching our heads at like, okay, someone gets stopped in South Carolina in Florence County with $3.2 million worth of cocaine, guns, cash, prescription drugs, and they're released the same night? Yeah, I just knew it didn't make common sense to me, but I don't know the details of the law and how that works. And now we know a little more, and and I've got a member of law enforcement that's agreed to come into the studio probably one day next week and walk us through, you know, how that process works. What does a a circuit judge do? What does a magistrate court um, decide? Uh, it's just very interesting to me that that person was allowed to, to kind of go their merry way. Now, you know, may, maybe they come back, maybe they don't. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather take your chances with them finding you or facing a jury and pleading guilty or, or being tried for, you know, $3.2 million worth of coke. I mean, just put yourself in that in that person's situation. They released you. You have a choice to make. I mean, do you either flee and you're a risk to flight or you come back and, and to take your medicine or you come back and argue that I'm not a criminal? You know, what mine? What my dress in my car? But it wasn't my drugs. I mean, what would you, you know, 30% of all the warrants turn into bench warrants. When someone's released, about one in every three ends up being um, having to chase them down, having to find out who they are. So if you're that person, I mean, just put yourself, if you're the guy that was caught with $3.2 million worth of cocaine, $80,000 cash, guns, and prescription medication, would you take your chances on them having to find you again or surrendering yourself at the appropriate time saying, here I am, let's have a trial? I mean, as much as I would like to say I'd do the right thing. What did Leonard Skinner say? Give me two steps, mister, or three, three, three steps. Yeah. And then, you, you know, you won't see case. me no more. Yeah, give me one step, and you won't see. I mean, I'll just take my chances. Yeah, I mean, with, I, mean I don't know how. Find me again. I don't know if, I, you know, if I'm a criminal and I'm doing things like trafficking drugs, 
um, I guess we should say allegedly or whatever, you know, legally. But if I'm trafficking drugs, I don't know how that criminal mind works. Uh, but I got to believe that I'd be out of there and they're not going to find me if I have anything to do with it. There you go. And so, so I just don't understand the logic behind letting, I mean, I understand they have a right to bond and there's no doubt about this, but that's a pretty serious offense as far as I'm concerned. Let's go to the phone. We have Verd in Marlboro County. Hey, Verd, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yeah, Ken, I'm a six o'clock caller, so I was working yesterday when you had the uh, big show on at uh, nine. But uh, I did was brought to my attention that uh, local managers' hands are pretty much tied under the second line court system uh, and through the circuit court. They, they have a certain amount of uh, guidelines they have to go by, and, and they have to follow them. So, you know, a lot of people, they, they not managers because they put these low bonds on people, but those bonds are set by the state, and the managers just has to follow what the guidelines are. And I don't know, it sort of – I didn't hear all the callers yesterday, but I think the gist of what I heard was uh, a lot of it was the local managers were catching grief because of the bonds they put on people. But those things are set by the state, and they just have to go along with what the guidelines that they're looking at when they bring somebody in front of them. When you say set by the state, is it the judicial branch? Is it the lead? I mean, does the General Assembly set the sentencing guidelines? I would think it's through the South Carolina court system. Okay. They set, they set those uh, different, whatever whatever the charge is against somebody, they, they're all set. And I, I would assume that all 46 counties have to comply. Like I said, somebody gets called in Florence with a $3.2 million worth of coke or gets called in Marlboro County. The guideline of what the magistrate's going to do in front of him is he's just sitting there reading it. You know? so, so there's a lot more to it than just uh, these magistrates are letting people off because they're their buddy or something like that. No, they're going by guidelines that are set, and I'm sure it's coming through the South Carolina judicial system. Gotcha. Thank you, Verd. Appreciate that. I mean, I'll get a text now. Magistrates feel trafficking narcotics, and these are people that know, is a victimless crime and see it as not a violent crime. Um, magistrates can only set bond on nonviolent crimes. First offense, drug charge, uh, formally suspended your driver's license. Not that way any longer would suspend license for six months. Supreme court changed that. So there's, um, some inside information as we, um, kind of delve further into this issue. The, the only point I'm trying to make, I'm not blaming a magistrate. I don't have any idea what their responsibilities are or are not. But it doesn't make any sense. I mean, someone called me a practical man a couple of weeks ago. I'm a very practical man. I mean, that's what you do when you're not real smart. You try to look at things at the surface and what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. For someone to get stopped with $3.2 million in cocaine, a gun, $80,000 in cash, and to be bonded out and sit on their merry way doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, it just does not. Um, now, nor does it for, for someone to sit in a jail for 311 days who wrote bad checks or didn't honor their child support obligations doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, they're both criminal. I get that. They're both criminal, but it seems very disproportional when someone sits in a jail for 311 days for not paying child support and someone's let out the very same day with $3.2 million in cocaine. And the public needs to understand these sorts of things. And it really goes back to the argument I made yesterday when we live in these secondary markets, we've had uh, a decentralizing of news. Disseminating of news is not as it formerly was. When I was on county council in 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, we had a reporter who came to every council meeting. They were employed by the local newspaper. 
their job was to kind of hold our feet to the fire. When we would vote for something, you'd have to explain why you voted for something. Uh, you were taking a task every now and then about not voting for something. Um, it, it, was it a liberal journalist? I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to call her name. I remember vividly who it is. I still speak to her occasionally. Um, but we were, th- there was somebody there doing the job that we've historically expected the media to do. Sometimes you liked the job they did because they gave you rave reviews. Other times you didn't like what they did because you felt like they kind of threw you under the bus. That was kind of the yin and yang of the media and politics. But we've had this decentralization uh, of, of media. We, we, um, we're probably as effective as a, as, a, as a legacy media outlet in our neck of the woods because of you, not because of me, because we've garnered somewhat of a listening audience and you guys are so inclined to be informed. And, and that's, our, I mean, that's our relevancy. I mean, it's the only reason we're relevant. But, um, but I, I said yesterday, because we're living in a news desert, somebody from Orangeburg or either Sumter called yesterday and said, you're exactly right. I mean, we don't get local news anymore. And the reason we don't get local news is this, the decentralizing of the news has led to the failure of these historic and legacy um, you know, news entities. The newspaper, I mean, we know what we're talking about here. The local newspaper was always you know, where you went to find out what was going on. The local newspaper is a dinosaur. I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, it's in existence, but it's kind of sort of not in existence in its previous construct. And, and I just believe that we, Wake Up Carolina, have somewhat of an honor, or a responsibility and an obligation to find out some of these issues. Since we talked about this yesterday, I've had two other issues um, text to me. Uh, one, a buddy of mine texted me last night. Hey, a friend of mine that doesn't have your number, he listens to you, doesn't know you well, but he sent me this information in hopes that I would send it along to you to see if you could uh, you kind of shine a bright light and find out what's going on. And I think we need to do more of that. I mean, I really do. I think we need to dedicate more of our effort to, to local issues that aren't being talked about. And when someone is stopped, everybody probably knows that someone got stopped with $3.2 million worth of cocaine. Very few that know was he was headline. bonded out. Very few know he was bonded out, and very few know that a uh, you know a chief magistrate has the authority to direct the 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 other magistrates on what to do or what not to do. Virgis added an ingredient. You know some of these guidelines or sentencing guidelines come out of Colombia. Uh, the magistrate said the mercy of is, is all of this true? Don't know. But if we had if we had a, a true journalistic effort in some of these smaller towns. We would know much more than we know today. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take our break. Dale in Florence. Good morning, Dale. Good morning, guys. And <clears throat> what you're talking about, the sensing, I, I, I have a buddy who court judge here for 15, 20 years. They're called truth and sentencing laws, and they do have We're losing you, Dale. Yeah. Let's do this. Let's take a break. See if Dale get to a better listening area. We'll tee him back up on the other side. Wake up, Carolina, Thursday morning. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone is there. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Hey, good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So Texas elects their justice of the peace, which is similar to our magistrates. Um, Florida elects their and I use Florida and Texas because I think they're states that we need to um, look to for leadership on how to get things right because I think they're obviously doing a good job, especially economically and probably in the criminal sector as well. But Florida elects their county and circuit judges. And I think county judges are the ones that set bonds. Circuit judges then appoint magistrates, but I, don't, I think magistrates in Florida are a little bit different. 
But the concern that I keep hearing about not electing judges is that, oh, we might get judges that apply their ideology and not their, their, uh, not the law. But isn't that what we're complaining about with judges that we're not electing is that they're applying their ideology and not the law? And, and Verge right that the state uh, Supreme Court sends down these guidelines, but judges still can set bonds um, uh, as they wish. Typically what they're told to do is set um, $1,000 per year. They're told to do that, but all they have to do is look at flight risk and danger to the community um, and apply those two aspects, and they can set the bond as they see fit. But, Ken, do me a favor. Maybe have the Rev call uh, the chief magistrate. I think her number is uh, 843-665-6690. And, and ask her to come on the show and explain herself. And let me let me know when she decides to come on and do that. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. I do believe this, guys, and and this carries us off in a different direction. And this is, I mean, we are a political opinion radio show. A host has, I mean, I said it a minute ago, I'll say it again. I've got about seven or eight. I've actually got 20 or 25. I mean, I got a stack of, of crap here that we could talk about if you guys choose to. Utter nonsense from Biden on gas prices. Uh, I got some other cheat sheets from days gone by. Uh, how much risk do you believe COVID poses to your health and well-being? Uh, documentary just details Zuckerberg's 400 million. But I do believe that we have a responsibility and an obligation to, um, to diverge from time to time out of the realm of political opinion and political debate and conversation and philosophizing about what we believe uh, in contrast to what others believe. I mean, they, there's a lot of beauty in this. I mean, it really, um, I, I keep going back to George W. Bush for some reason. W. would have a cabinet meeting twice a week. I would imagine they met every day, but they had twice a week when certain other uh, people came into the room. It's kind of an expanded uh, meeting or expanded audience and, and people who attended a meeting that don't attend uh, some of the others. And you know what W. would always say? What's Limbaugh saying? I mean, he would always, I mean, he, nobody else cared, but, but <laughs> W. did because he's the consummate politician in the room. He's got to be aware of what Limbaugh's saying. So he would, I, I would imagine, as somebody in that meeting monitoring Rush Limbaugh's show. Limbaugh was a political opinion um, giver and taker. Not much of a taker, more of a giver but, than he was. But he definitely had his finger on but, what was important well, to I, a majority of, well, certainly listeners, Republican voters, conservative citizens. So he knew that that was, it would be a good measure. I'm going to give you listeners the ultimate compliment. I can't tell you how many politicians in this area call me. They don't call me because they believe I'm a political expert. They don't call me because they think I have all the right answers. You know why they call me? Because of you. Because we have this relationship every morning. We have these conversations every morning. To your point, Reb, they believe that we have our finger on the pulse. The pulse of whom? You. So that's, I mean, I couldn't give you a bigger compliment than that. When, when people call me, and ask me, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I'd like to be uh, full of myself and say, yeah, because I'm a political genius. <laughs> and all these guys and ladies want to know what I think because I'm just, you know, I'm the go-to guy. And I'm, I'm not that me, crazy. Me, me. Well, I mean, I'm not that crazy. I mean, I can be egotistical, but I'm not nuts. I mean, the reason they call me is because of you and this show we have, this interaction we have every single morning. Um and you guys affect me. You impact me. I mean, Jim has, has kind of, you know, he stood on that hill. I mean, give him credit. 
He believes in electing judges. He believes in electing magistrates. Um, he thinks that's the best way to do it. When I try to convince him about this hybrid model, Jim, about, about if we, that's the practicality and the pragmatist in me. That's the, the former politician, in all honesty, you know, trying to get a better deal than the one we have now. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think the ultimate compliment to you is how many other people call me really on behalf of you. I just happen to be the the one that hosts the show. 843-661-0937 is and, our number. And certainly we have an open invitation for anybody in the magistrate's office that would like to address this sure. issue publicly. Uh, the, the door is open for that. But if we take this where I think we need to take this, and we're doing this on the fly because that's the way we do everything, that then maybe we do need to do, as Jim suggested. And not, I mean, I'm not in the gotcha media business, but, but somebody has some explaining to do. The public deserve to know. This is not gotcha radio. This is not to embarrass nor insult nor incriminate anybody. This is just uh, an audience of listeners who live in a community, who care about the community, who deserve to know. Why did, why did it go down this way? Why did you guys decide this was the best way for this transaction? I mean, it's a criminal transaction, but this transaction nonetheless to be made. Let's go to the phone. Here's Steve in Florence. Good morning, Steve. Hey, morning, guys. I'm happy I found you guys on the radio. I'm 35. I consider myself an independent, and I lean right. I like my guns. But um, maybe this could be one of the questions you ask for the debate. Is how do we get these bonds for um, no bonds for some of these drug traffickers on deadly drugs, like um, the cocaine. That's deadly drugs, and we can go out and OD on that. That's a danger to the community, in my opinion. I'll take that off there. Thank you, Steve. Well, it appears to me from from the outside looking in that there is some amount of drugs that should categorize you as a violent offender. I mean, I understand if you've got a um a bag of weed and you smoke dope. I mean, I understand that that that's criminal because smoking dope's against the law, as we say in the seventies and eighties. Smoking reefer is against the law. <laughs> Remember the movie Reefer Madness and all these other sorts. Of, my dad would always say. Fool around with those reefer heads now, and you'll be in trouble. I can tell you now, fool around with those reefer heads, you'll be in trouble. But but smoking a joint, whether the Baptist like this or not, is uniquely different than someone having guns, $80,000 in cash, and $3.2 million worth of cocaine. They're both drug offenses. I would easily argue that the person booked on a drug charge of a, of a, you know, a joint or a bag of weed, that person is probably not a danger nor a threat to society. The one with $3.2 million worth of cocaine, guns, and cash probably is. And I just don't understand the logic in allowing that person to be released in that moment. Does someone deserve a hearing? Of course they do. Do I believe in due process? Absolutely. Do I believe innocent until proven guilty? Yes. But, but so, you know, th- th- there's, th- there's something called circumstantial evidence that has to come into play and when law enforcement makes this big arrest, they need to be sure this person's not going to be back on the street the very next day. Now, I'm questioning where this person is. Because once again, if I had to play the odds, and the odds were me coming back facing a trial on a charge of $3.2 million, cash money, guns, and all these other things, or trying to figure out a way to get to Costa Rica, I'd probably try to, today, I'd probably be on my way to figuring out how I can get to Costa Rica. And I had somebody from law enforcement tell me yesterday that about 30% of these sorts of cases, um, you have to go find them. I mean, a bench warrant has to be issued. He didn't know the success rate on the bench warrant 
But I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, all those things have to come into play. And, and once again, I'm not, I'm not condemning anybody. I just think these are conversations because we don't have a local media that we aren't having that we absolutely should have and are essential uh, to, 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 to the discussion we are trying to have here. 843-661-0937 is our number. I told you I had a couple of other stories pitched to me yesterday. Did you know? Did you know? One of the interesting ones, and, and I'll share this with you. I think this would be interesting to our audience. Um, I knew this happened. It was confirmed to me uh, through a third party, and I got some of the uh, some of the gory details. There was someone walking their dog in our local neighborhoods, and local, I mean Florence, forgive me Sumter and Orangeburg here, but in Florence, there was a person, a female, walking her two small dogs. Somebody in that neighborhood is raising pit bulls. Let me say that again. Somebody in the neighborhood, a very residential area, is raising pit bulls. The pit bulls get out, attack the the the, the other dogs. The, the ladies walk in the dogs, her pets. They kill one of the dogs. The other is severely injured. Um, the female, the, the, the lady that owns the puppies, not the pit bulls, is holding one of the dogs over her head, you know, trying to save the dog's life. Um, and... The person who owned the pit bulls is given a warning. Who makes that call? Who's involved in that process? I mean, when someone is raising pit bulls in a neighborhood, the pit bulls escape their home. That they're, you know, the, if Mars Anderson, Mars Anderson's a veterinarian, retired veterinarian. Mars and I got um, voted into county council the exact same day. Um, Mars told me one day, and I'll never forget it. If you're going to own a dog, it's your responsibility to care for it, tend to it, take care of it. Um, so somebody's living in a neighborhood, they're raising pit bulls, pit bull gets out, other pit bulls, I mean, I think it was three or four pit bulls get out, kill a dog, um, complete, I mean, nearly kill the other. Um, I don't know that they attack the female cause I guess they're trying to show their dominance. One of the dogs is probably an alpha male. He's going to show the other dogs, you know, watch me kill this dog. And that makes me kind of the boss of these pit bulls. I mean, there, there's something bred in those dogs. You know, we got dog lovers listening. Um, pit bulls are dangerous. Stop saying they aren't. I mean, just stop with that. Can, can a pit bull be a pet? Yeah. Can a pit, is a pit bull dangerous? Yeah. I mean, those aren't mutually exclusive of one another. You can have a pit bull as a pet. That pet you have can be very, very dangerous. That's just the realities of it. And I'm tired of dog lovers saying that dog wouldn't hurt a flea. A pit bull will, will hurt you or anybody else. There, there's something in their genetic makeup. They're bred to be that way. But here's the story. It's not that. Well, it is that. I mean, if you own the dog or you're the person scarred for life, uh, for fear of your life, if, a, if, a, if a, you know, uh, a pack of pit bulls have already killed one of your pets about to kill another, you wonder if you're under attack, is your life at risk? So whomever investigates that decides that the dog owner needs to be issued a warning. Really? A warning? I mean, I think the dogs were taken away. I don't know what happens to the dogs, but the owner should be held responsible. There should be something a lot more stiff than, than a simple warning. Um, that, that was given to me yesterday. How many of us know that story? No, nobody knows anything around here because we don't have a media. And I'm convinced, Rev, that we must do a better job. And, and you're the guy that can help me with this more than anybody. I mean, we've got to go. We've got to, we got to go petition ownership to allow us to do some of these investigative uh, methods. I'm not a, I said it yesterday and I'll stick to this. If you guys are waiting and trusting me to be the media source in this community, 
we have stooped to a new low. <laughs> I mean, th- this is an all-time low. I'm pretty good at trying to generate a conversation. At times, I think I do a decent job at provoking you to call in and express yourselves, and we agree or disagree or somewhat agree, somewhat disagree. But I've never believed it was my job nor responsibility to try and report the news. But some of these things just aren't getting talked about, and they're in our community. And the community deserves to know some of these issues that, that are abounding and not being reported on. So, Rev, you've got quite the uh, the heavy lift okay. and then hard task ahead. <laughs> you've got to go commit, uh, convince ownership and management that we need to do a better job of um, of setting aside some period of time. during. Maybe we do a podcast. I mean, maybe we do an hour-long podcast once a week. And we broadcast it online, the website. I don't know how we do this, but I just think because nobody else is doing this, we, we must step in um, the gap and, and try to provide some level of news and reporting. You Let's, know, there's, there's some of these things I've seen the headlines and because I, you know, I, I'm on social media and I do a lot of browsing and I'll do, I do, I did see some, a little something about the, the Pitbull story. Um, and I saw just the first headline about the, the drug bust, uh, but not the follow-up. Um, but people that aren't online, where do they get any information? Facebook. If they're not online. Twitter, whatever you're right. If, they don't, if, they're, if not they're not online, online, they don't get it from anywhere. Yeah. They don't get it from anywhere. Um, let's take a break. We've got a call. We'll come back. 843-661-0937 is our number. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Benji is listening to the app on I-95 this morning. Hey, Benji. Good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for taking my call, as always. Um, I just want to say I, I commend and applaud y'all for uh, leaving those open invitations for uh, not just the magistrate's office, but, you know, political figures and government agencies to come in and explain themselves when it, it seems like some explaining needs to be done. But uh, I, I feel like uh, I don't think you're going to get an answer on this from any official agency because uh, an observation that I've kind of made when it comes to political figures and government is uh, when you're in the right, and, and you know you're in the right, and you hear something that stands against what you're saying, you're ready to come out and, and, and make it right and explain what needs to be explained to, to get the facts straight. However, whenever something may not be in the up and up and you, you, you've got some uh, pushback from the public or the perception is, is changed, you're not so inclined to come out and, and get the facts straight or fix the story because uh, you, you know you're wrong or you know it's not the way it should have happened. And, and so I, I think there's going to be a, uh, a disconnect between the communication of, of this particular story, like any particular story, for uh, when, when, when the facts don't really go your way, you're, you're not really more inclined to explain yourself. So. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. I'll, I'll use an analogy. I'll, I, I snuck a guy into a bar one time a long time ago. In the back door. You I mean, he was, I was old enough. He wasn't old enough, but he wanted to come in. So anyway, I got creative and figured out a way to get him in the bar. Um, and the bouncer came to us and said, um, he's got to go. He's not old enough. And he, and he left. Well, we started drinking more and more and more. And they said, we snuck him in again. So the bouncer came back the second time, and he was a bouncer for real. He said, we're going to do this the easy way, or we're going to do this the hard way. You're going to make that decision. And it was just as emphatically clear as you could imagine. There was no sneaking back in the bar ever again uh, because you could tell the tone of his voice, the tenor of the conversation. He meant every word he said and was willing to do whatever. So, so I guess the point I'm trying to make is 
If someone is in a polit- and I've been in a political crap storm. I mean, I understand you want to hide and, and hunker down and not talk to anybody. I mean, it's no fun when you're there, but it's your responsibility to enlighten the public, to, to address whatever issue it is out there. And I think the public respects you more when you take these sorts of things head on. The public does not expect the public official to be perfect. I mean, I think that's bizarre. I mean, you know, I've often said the only difference in an elected official and you is they're just like you, just a little more. Uh, if you're egotistical, they're probably a little more. If you're nar- narcissistic, they're probably a little bit more. If you're consumed by your own thoughts and beliefs, they're probably a little more consumed by theirs. But but I do believe that uh, because we live in an area that has a um, that just has lost its media influence. I mean, let's be honest that we've had the decentralizing of media. You know, Rev, I think about the 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 constant conflict that we appear to be in today, and the reason I believe we're there is the decentralizing of media because for a long, long, long time, conservative voices couldn't be heard. I mean, you didn't get a job at the the Washington Post. You didn't get a job at the New York Times. And we have these monolithic varieties. We have the New York Times where, you know, 95% of the people working there are liberal. Well, there's not going to be conflict when the news is disseminated by everybody who kind of agrees with one another. But along comes Limbaugh and along comes Fox News and they take a different stand. And out of that comes conflict. So, so when someone says, man, I'm tired of the perpetual conflict, I'm not because I think it's healthy. I think it's necessary. And I think the reason we're having that is people who were not previously allowed to express themselves are now allowed to. And, and if you can't get a job at the New York Times, you know what you can do? You can start a website. Next thing you know, uh, Joe Rogan has millions and millions and millions of people following him. You know why? Because they believe He'll ask honest questions. They believe he'll dig a little bit. Rogan's not out to get anybody, but when you come on his show and you have some authority over the people, he expects you to be able to defend that. You ask for the right to do these things. Now defend why you did them certain ways. That to me is absolutely in bounds. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. I don't mind a good fight as long as it's fair. But every now and then, someone gets out of bounds, and you've got to address that. And we'll do that this morning uh, now. Oh, Because okay. you, you mentioned the last hour of the show and this local issue mm-hmm. that garnered a lot of attention, $3.2 million of cocaine and guns and cash and all these other. Um, it, it's, it's, the, it's, the, uh, it's the classic drug bust, guns, cash, and drugs. Um, our, our fine friend Tony from Sumter called in. And, uh, and basically implied, and I think some of this was provocateur. Some of this was cause he, I mean, he really believes in kind of a libertarian worldview and, uh, limited government, less government involvement, intrusion. He and I had this debate about, you know, should that be against the law or not? I think his words were illegal and unlawful. I mean, he was trying to, I don't know, um, create some separation between what's illegal and what's unlawful. Um, he was arguing in my opinion, Tony may be listening now. But he, the argument he was basing upon was somewhat of a philosophical argument. Um, but the, the unfair part of this is him uh, bringing in the name Jefferson. Yeah, it was you know, he kept hard saying, for you to argue against well, he kept your saying, old buddy, what, what he did, what he tried, is very strategic. Yeah. Very intentional. Um, but like, not got to give Tony credit for but, that. But not fair. Uh, because Tony tried to put me at odds with my political hero, Thomas Jefferson. And that's just not fair. I mean, that's, that's being too conniving, too mischievous. Like something you uh, might do. Yeah, well, it's, it's like, I mean, I'm the guy that does that. You're not entitled to those same freedoms and flexibilities. But um, so I scoured last night 
looking for things Jefferson said. Because once again, Tony being the fair fighter he is, the, the kick and the growing, the, the, the kick below the belt, so to speak, um, trying to put me at odds with Thomas Jefferson. There are a lot of things you can do. There, there are a lot of things I'll tolerate. There are a lot of things I'll stomach. I'm not stomaching uh, putting it, you know, at odds with Thomas Jefferson. So, um, and I and I, I don't want to put words in Tony's mouth, but but in essence, he's arguing from a uh, a libertarian perspective, uh, kind of the natural law argument um, that human beings possess um, intrinsic values that govern their reasoning and behavior. Um, you know, if someone wants to have $3.2 million worth of cocaine, the natural law says they have a right to that. Um, now, now, Tony and I would agree, I think, and I think a lot of our listeners who have studied these sorts of things, anybody with an understanding or grasp of American history, I think, would accept that not only was Jefferson a founder, he was probably um, the most instrumental founder in developing the philosophy of limited government that pretty much dominated American politics. I mean, the Jeffersonian way of governing was our dominant governing philosophy for most of the uh, the 19th century and probably ran out of gas in the 20th century. Um, the New Deal and some of these other things, the centralized power was kind of Hamilton's celebration, Hamiltonians. Um, I've all, often argued Jefferson probably won the the, the battle, but Jer- Hamilton won the war. We've given in to all these Hamiltonian tendencies and central planning. Um, but, but Jefferson had a devotion to what he referred to, his words, not mine, the holy cause of freedom. Jefferson was very intentional in what he wrote. I mean, I think he understood that that was his skill. That was his gift. That was his talent. Not, not a brilliant orator by any stretch of the imagination. Obama or Reagan would speak circles around Thomas Jefferson but they did not have the, the, the raw intellect and philosophizing capabilities or capacities that OTJ had, um, as he was referred to, the redhead rabble rouser from the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, very distrustful of centralized power, um, very devoted, once again, to the holy cause of freedom, the ideals of limited government, but also, Tony, the rule of law. And when you read some of Jefferson's, I mean, Jefferson was a delegate to the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia. And as a member of the, the Second Continental Congress, when he drafted uh, the Declaration of Independence, um, adopted by Congress in July 4, um, 1776, and the birth of a nation. So Jefferson, once again, not just a founder, but I would argue uh, the founder most instrumental in developing the philosophy of limited government that served this country uh, for a long, long, long time. Not so much now. I mean, Jeffersonians are uh, not as entrusted, not as in power. Not the, the Jeffersonian notion, I think, is something that we, we talk about, we write about, we understand, but, but we'd rather not see it implemented because it, it, it defers the responsibility to the individual. Natural law does indeed take over. But Jefferson, I mean, the, the most famous words ever drafted, it's probably life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, if you, if, you, if you had a long list of the things Jefferson wrote and said throughout his political and um, I had a lot of lives. You know, Rev, when you think about it, politics and law were perhaps his least favorite interest. I mean, really, I mean, he was a Renaissance man. He was so interested in, in farming and wine and, uh, you know, he just had, I mean, he was such a unique, I mean, he's a Renaissance man. 
we throw that name around uh, very loosely. We've we've called we've referred to Elon Musk on this show as the modern day Renaissance man. But I think Jefferson was a Renaissance man unrivaled. But when he stated life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, self-evident truths, what was another famous thing Jefferson wrote. But he also wrote, and I quote, you ready? Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So he was not, he was not an anarchist, but he was very much a fan and an advocate for limited government. But, but Jefferson knew that there had to be some orderly construct of the way self-government was to perform if we entrusted man to govern fellow man via the consent of casting a ballot. But, but when you look at natural law, once again, Tony's right. I mean, natural law basically implies that humans possess the, the, this, this value or, or this, this value system that, that governing, govern their, in other words, I'll give you an example. Um, everyone knows, I mean, everyone should know that killing another human being is wrong. Therefore, punishment is right. Well, I mean, who does the punishing? I mean, if natural law has this intrinsic um, mindset or value or believes that human beings possess these intrinsic values that, that, that basically govern or police their reasoning behavior, but, but when someone steps out of that realm, when someone, if, if, if someone kills someone else, something about the natural law, that the, the human element knows that that's not right, therefore punishment is justified, um, who applies the punishment? Where does the punishment come from? Um, I'll use the, the situation yesterday that we talked about. Um, do you believe it's wrong to own $3.2 million? Do you believe it's wrong to have $3.2 million worth of cocaine in the back of your car? I mean, that's the human element in play, but the human being has to decide whether that's wrong or not. And I could go back down the road of Locke. I mean, we know the core of Locke's classical libertarianism and uh, and liberal thinking was basically um, based on the doctrine of natural rights, property rights, human rights, um, resistance to government, not allowing government to have but so much sway or influence. Um, the, the limits of political authority. I mean, those are things jo- jo- Locke, uh, the, the 17th century philosopher, inspired Jefferson. I mean, and I just, for, for clarity's sake, Jefferson was probably, once again, um, his philosophies have probably affected American government more uh, than any founder ever has or ever will. I mean, Washington led the army, Washington was the general. I've never seen a statue of George Washington where he didn't have a sword on his side. I don't know that I've seen many of Thomas Jefferson that he didn't have a pen or a piece of paper. You know, the scene in John Adams when, when, when the, the, um, the confidant of Adams says, you know, I've always thought that you and Mr. Jefferson fought for the revolution. Um, but for clarity's sake, I don't think Jefferson would have a problem with us uh, incarcerating somebody who has $3.2 million dollars worth of cocaine, nor do I believe Jefferson would, would argue that, you know, let's not declare one side of the road and one side of the road mine. I mean, I understand the, the natural law argument. I certainly understand that. And do, do I believe we have gone far past what Jefferson ever imagined in limited government and some of the philosophies he adhered to and believed in until the way his purchase came along? That was a different story because <laughs> there's an opportunity and political expediency. I mean, he's a human being, a frail flawed human being just like everybody else and every other one but i just had to address tony's um you know i mean it's just unfair to take the host of the show and put him at odds with this political <laughs> hero very strategic tony 
but but I went to work last night, and I think the quote that really gives me some cover is when he said, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. He accepted that government was going to have some role, and I don't think conservatives should be opposed to declaring one side of the road yours and one side of the road mine, nor giving law enforcement ultimate authority to decide, hey, this person's got $3.2 million worth of cocaine, $80,000 in cash, and guns. That's probably a reason to keep them incarcerated. It's basically you're talking about guardrails for a civil society, yeah, right? but very limited. Yeah. Very, very, very limited authority, very limited control. And those rules are enforced generally by people that are like you say, the consent of the governed, the sure. ballot box. And that's kind of where we've ended up. In the, I mean, I understand well, that. We're supposed to be. Well, I mean, I'll tell you this. F- uh, philosophically, I- I'll agree with Tony. I mean, I do. I think human beings should have the more rights we have to declare our own fate and future, the, the more success Jefferson's effect or impact on our nation is. But we've conceded that. I mean, we the people have accepted that we're going to let government do more and more and more and more and more. Let's take a, uh, let's take a call. Here is John in Florence. Hello, John. Good morning, fellas. Morning, uh, John. I think uh, Tony was uh, speaking right out of the secular progressive handbook. And, uh, you know, that's why they don't like Jesus. That's why they don't like God, because God was full of rules and regulations. Don't do this. Don't do that. They want to be able to do anything you want. And uh, the more you tell people that, the more they start believing it, which is unfortunate. But uh, the people on the other side call people that believe in law and order to buzzwords for sure that we're racist or colonialists or empire builders. And uh, they're getting a lot of traction and a lot of supporters. I'm scared to death for the uh, upcoming elections. Thank you, John. Well, appreciate that. Very interesting call. This could be a, a uniquely interesting conversation if we have people willing to kind of go down that road. Take a break. Back in just a couple of minutes. Hey, as we say down south, it's been a while. It's been a while since we've had great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker with us, but he's back with us this morning as his frequent Thursday morning visits. He's been have traveling been, around the world. Been too. traveling around the world, um, reporting on um worldly and national affairs he's with us this morning john good morning how are you hey i'm doing great ken hope you're doing well today you too dave good to be with you today morning. yeah i've missed you it's yeah. good to be back on the show absolutely good to have you back we know you've been uh, attending to uh, important matters um i can't think of i want to get your take on this um okay. ukrainian president Zelensky is urging the european union to impose an oil embargo on russia here's my question kind of a weird way to look okay. at this can they I mean, can the European Union um, power its economy without Russian crude oil? Uh, Some countries, the answer to that question is yes. Uh, Other countries, the answer is definitely no. So there are 27 members of the European Union. Uh, Two members in particular are so dependent on Russian energy that they could not go along with any type of embargo of Russian energy. Those two countries, Germany and Hungary. They get about 40% of their energy needs, oil and gas needs from Russia. So they would not be on board. And in order to impose that kind of boycott of Russian oil, 
you need to have unanimous consent, and you don't have unanimous consent because of Germany and Hungary. And having said that, I mean, just I mean, I think you agree with me that it's going to be real, real hard to convince the members of the European Union to do that. But that the, the Biden administration has imposed some new sanctions against Russia. Uh, what what are the latest rounds of sanctions, and how do they hope to adversely affect uh, the Russian economy? Well, these are new sanctions that have been imposed by both the U.S. and the European Union on Russia. They include sanctions against two of the biggest banks in Russia. Uh, We've seen how these sanctions, which started to be imposed about six weeks ago at the start of the war in Ukraine, have really crippled the Russian economy. And that's what this is aimed at as well. In the meantime, you also have a number of European nations expelling Russian diplomats from their country. In fact, right near me, uh, Ken, uh, about, I would say, a five to seven minute drive from where I live is the Russian embassy in Washington. And I wonder uh, if we will see the, the ultimate sanction, which is kicking out every diplomat from Russia that is in Washington, D.C., and essentially locking, locking the doors to that embassy. I wonder if we'll see that happen. That would be the ultimate punishment, uh, really making a big difference. But uh, right now we see Europe doing that. Austria is the latest European nation to announce the expulsion of Russian diplomats from their country. John, the, the House of Representatives uh, passed a bill Wednesday um, urging uh, c- kind of a U.S.-led investigation of Russian war crimes in Ukraine. I think most of us believe that Putin is guilty of war crimes, but, but we don't believe he'll ever be punished for any of this. Is this symbolism or is there more to this? Yeah, it really is symbolism. We have seen leaders uh, being brought before criminal tribunals. Uh, most recently, the leader, the president of Serbia, Slobodan Milosevic, uh, was ultimately brought before the International Criminal Court in The Hague, and he's still in a prison. Uh, but we often see instances where leaders are tried, as they say, can in absentia. And if indeed war crimes are brought, charges are brought against Vladimir Putin, I think that's what we're likely to see. I don't think we'll ever see him, for instance, in a criminal court, in the international criminal court, for instance, in the Hague. That will not happen. So to your question, yeah, it really is symbolism more than anything else. Last question. Let's go to the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court. Um, the Senate, we believe will confirm um, Justice or Judge Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court maybe today. Is that what I'm hearing? So the question is, is it today? And the follow-up is, how many Republicans do we believe will support uh, the nomination? Good question. It will be today. That's at least the plan. Uh, Right now, in addition to all Democrats, three Republican senators say they will vote for Judge Jackson. Uh, Those are Senators uh, Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Mitt Romney of Utah, There are other Republicans uh, that I would keep my eye on because they have not indicated how they will vote. One is Rob Portman, who I saw yesterday at the White House uh, taking part in a bill signing event. Uh, He's retiring. He's a Republican from Ohio. And Roy Blunt, he's also retiring. He's a Republican from Missouri. But uh, if it's three, it's three. That makes it bipartisan. But certainly it's not like it used to be. You know, this is just two examples. If you have one moment. Ken, two examples, Stephen Breyer, who's retiring, who, of course, Judge Jackson would replace. He was confirmed with with a vote of 87 senators. Think about that. That's bipartisanship. And John Roberts appointed to the bench by Republican George W. Bush, 78 senators supported him. So that meant that both of those 
uh, justices on the U.S. Supreme Court got strong bipartisan support, and we simply do not see that anymore. There's just so much partisanship right now in Washington. No question about it. John, thank you for your time. Good to have you back, and we look forward to talking again. I look forward to it. Have a great day, Ken. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker. Why do we mention Great Television? Because Great Television owns WMBF, the NBC affiliate in Myrtle Beach, as well as WIS, the NBC affiliate in Columbia home of the fighting lady Gamecocks. Can we at least say the lady Gamecocks have some fight in them, Rev? They do. Yeah. yeah of course you do. The, the men's programs have struggled, but the women's program, um, as Dawn wears her, her Gucci and Louis Vuitton attire um, and makes her mark or leaves her mark in the world of women's She can sports. afford it. Yeah. Well, yeah. She's the highest paid female um, coach in America. Uh, UConn and South Carolina was the most gambled uh, the the most wagered women's sporting event in the history of Las Vegas. Um, to which my question would be, what was the previous record holder? You know, was Great it? Question. Uh, I have no. I mean, I'm trying to think of a uh, a monumental moment in female sports. Uh, while we still have female sports, we may not have female sports here much longer. Um, had an interesting vote in the House. We'll get to that in just a second. I'm talking about here in South Carolina. But someone held on during the break. Let's make sure we go to the phone. Breeze is with us now. Hey, Breeze. What's up, guys? I wonder how all those girls that wore those masks at the state house will like it when next year the average height of the team is six foot eight, and, and they're all with Dave Joe before that. So, but anyway, won't be so damn woke down. I promise you that. Um, you know, you can argue both sides of that argument, kid, that you were talking about with Tommy. I mean, and I can argue both sides pretty good. You know, you can do it for hours. But uh, yeah, the state house thing—that's very disappointing. But I tell you, another thing that's been going on is um, what's going on with the Board of Trustees of Carolina. And it, again, I'm at the point now where I just think that a lot of these quote-unquote Republicans, they aren't on our side. And it looks like to me that you got two billionaire women that are Democrats, are bad, and some of the guys on the some of the trustees, and then they're going to turn around and basically trick a Republican-controlled House and Senate to get rid of anybody that seems, I would bet you that the majority of the people they're wanting to get rid of are probably conservative Christian Republicans. And I bet you when you get right now to what's going on over here, it's not, it's not so much a Clemson, Carolina feud. I'm going to tell you right now, it's a political feud. And our Republican legislators are probably going to take the bait like the like the like the big sissies that they always are. Because what you got is a couple of billionaires that want to run the school, and they want to make the school as woke as they possibly can. They've already made sexist comments. The pharmaceutical lady says, well, you know, I'll give to the women's sports, but I'll not give it to the men. But what if a guy said that? You know, he'd be all over the front page. There's more to this whole thing than maybe saying that the trustees did A, B, C, or D wrong. What it really boils down to is the radical left wanted to get rid of certain members of the uh, board of trustees to put in people that will do their bidding. And that comes back for these billionaire oligarchs that, you know, that are up there to Democrats. That's what I think. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. You know, I've not had much to say about that, but I, I will go on the record um, for, for a few moments here. Uh, and we'll get back to the, to, to, to the normal Jeffersonian talk and whatever you guys want to talk about. But, but I, I want to say this. I do believe that the University of South Carolina board needs 
um, some change. I mean, I do. And I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about the way it's formulated. It's a big board. It's cumbersome. It's um, It's got 21 members. It's got, you know, um, it's got politicians on the board. We can debate the best way to change that reality. But but I want to say this. From what I've gathered, and and I have a, I have a very personal friendship with three board members. I mean, I, I know a lot of those people on the board, but I don't have friendships. I mean, they're, they're, they would be acquaintances. I have bumped into these people. Uh, being a Gamecock fan and a former politician uh, presiding over the Senate, I dealt with those folks on issues, just as I dealt with some of the, uh, some of the folks at Clemson. Um, I have acquaintances with about half the board of Clemson. I wouldn't consider them friends, but I've got three friends, good friends on the board at USC, that care about that university. Now, now we can argue about the, what the role of a board is and how we would select or should select the board, but one of the debates within um, the Democrat senators took on, and some of the Republicans did, they took on some of um, what the board members did. And, and you may disagree with me, but if a board member represents a, a judicial district, and right now that's the way we elect board members, the USC Board of Trustees is elected via the judicial district. I think there's 16 in South Carolina. Um, in those districts, you, you find someone. And so, some of the, um, I don't know, some of the interrogating led me to believe that that the senators don't believe that a, that a board member should go to bat for people in his community when they confront an issue at the university. And I just think that's lunacy. Do, do I believe the board should should meddle in the business of the, the daily affairs of the university? No. I mean, you don't hire a board to run a university. You hire a board to, to hire a president to run the university. The president hires an AD to run the athletics department. But, but if, if Dave Baker's son is at South Carolina, the University of South Carolina, and he's having a problem, his kid's having a problem with a teacher or a class or a dorm or, or some situation I think it is that board member's duty to try and raise awareness of that issue of that kid who lives in their district. And it seemed to me that the the Senate, some of the subcommittee or some of the committee members, the screening committee, were arguing against that. In other words, it's not your job. Your job is to elect that president and let that president run that university. And I do believe fundamentally that's the role of a board. But I do believe when someone who lives in the district of a board of trustee member and their kids having an issue. It is perfectly acceptable to me to call that board member or their office and say, hey, here's my situation. Can you help me? And I can tell you this, if I were on the board and Dave Baker called me because his kid had a situation with a class or a teacher or a dorm or something out of his control, I would feel obligated to try and understand the situation and address the situation in a most respectful fashion. That doesn't mean the board is there to run the university. But if a kid's trying to get into law school and he's got the grades and he's qualified, should a board member of that kid, let's say, let's say, let's say Dave Baker, Rev's son wants to go to law school. Rev's sons need somebody to advocate for. It's competitive. It's very competitive. Should, should Rev, I mean, should it be out of bounds for Rev to call a board member and say, hey, my kid's trying to get on the board, or is trying to get on the, uh, in, the, in the law school, can, can you help me? I think board members should.
be inclined to go to bat for people in their district and address concerns. Uh, I mean, I'm they talking play about a representative role in a way. Yeah, I mean, if if if, if the in kid calls the board member and says, "Hey, the Chick Fil A in campus is putting too much mayonnaise on the sandwiches," <laughs> I mean, hang the phone up. I mean, that, that, the absurdity of that. If somebody abuses that, then that's their problem, not the board member. But but the board members that I know and are and are personal friends of mine spend a great deal of their time, energy, and effort addressing some of those concerns, and it's being misrepresented. I'm sorry, it is. Are are some board members um, have some board members meddled probably more than well? I mean, that's the nature of boards. I mean, that's why you reprimand, and that's why you address, and that's why you have these debates about what they should or should not do. But it seems to me, once again, that that some of the senators have a problem uh, with board members advocating for people who live in that district. And I believe a board member should advocate for people who live in that district. And I know the, the three friends of mine spend most of their time as board members advocating for kids who have issues at that university same thing at clemson i mean i think the same thing happens at clemson i mean if i had a kid in clemson and i knew my board member and my kid was having an issue not about mayonnaise or not on the the chick-fil-a sandwich but an issue about dorms or class or or scheduling and they they couldn't get any help because i can tell you this guys bureaucrats aren't very interested in helping you i'm sorry <laughs> You're, you're nodding your head. I mean, you, you've dealt with some of that. I've dealt with some of that. Oh, you yeah. call the university, you, you call a bureaucratic agency, and you call me back and tell me how willing they were to address your concern. The board members are there to force some of the bureaucratic tendencies within the university to look after the family of the kid, to address some of these concerns if they're valid, if they're warranted. And, and a day that we stop doing that is a day we turn the university completely over to bureaucrats, and you'll get exactly what you deserve. Your problem will remain your problem, and nobody in bureaucratic land will have any interest in trying to address it. I have a question. Um, why Why would anybody put mayonnaise on a chicken sandwich or anything for that matter? Blech. I don't know. Is a chicken sandwich a chicken sandwich without mayonnaise? <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> we, we could argue that. Do we have a call? Uh, we have one coming in. Okay, 843-661-0937. And that would be the same with Clemson. That would be the, and I understand that, 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 that to me, to me, there's some changes that need to be made on the USC board. I think the board's too big. I've always said the board's too big, and the university's probably too political. You're not going to stop the politics of the situation. I think we can address uh, the, the size of the board and how to properly um, make it more effective and more functional. Let's go to the phone. Debbie, I think in Florence. Hello, Debbie. Uh, this is Betty. Betty. Uh, Ken, I disagree with that because you're. Your child is not in grammar school or a high school no more. You're in college. So if that kid wants to go to law school, that law, that kid should be smart enough to apply without interruption from a board member. That kid should apply on his own. Just like you said yesterday, I think, that they made an announcement for your, uh, everybody to get from the fourth floor or third to the floor, and your daughter called you and said, Daddy, what should I do? And Dave said, tell her to get downstairs. You know, you've got to use common sense on things and don't act like a, a, a grammar school child. You're in college now. Thank you, Betty. Thank you, Betty. Appreciate that. That, that would be the alternate, alternate argument. Um, is it a meritocracy or not? Um, I just don't have a problem with a board member listening to a constituent because that's what you are. I mean, if you've got a kid at Carolina 
and a board member lives in your community, he's your advocate. I mean, he's your he's your I mean, he's the guy that you call or the person, the lady you call. Um, and I'm not defending everything the board has ever done. I mean, as a Gamecock fan, I get frustrated. Some of the um, the, the main frustration is how big and cumbersome uh, the board is. But but obviously, it seemed to me that a lot of the debate about you know critis- being critical of the USC Board of Trustees centered around the, these board members meddling and getting involved in the affairs of the university outside of their you know fundamental role as uh, hire a president, let the president run the university. Here, here's what I'll say. Give me a responsive bureaucracy, and I won't refer to the board member. I won't defer to the board member. Once a bureaucracy gets responsible and competent and efficient and effective at handling whatever complaints we have, then nobody would ever call the board. In other words, if a kid's got a problem with a dorm or, or a class or a teacher or some other element, um, yeah, they're college kids. Do you really believe a college kid knows how to deal with an issue about his dorm or her dorm or a professor or a class or something like that? No. I mean, you know, they're not 30 years old. They're, they're 18 or 19 or 20 years old. They're, they should be getting better by then. But I think calling a parent and say, hey, I've got a big problem with my dorm. I've got a big problem with my class. I've got a problem with this professor. Um, I'll, I'll tell you this, Rev. I have told my daughter, don't you tell anybody teaching you anything at USC that your father's a former politician. Because I know the majority are liberal, and I'm not. And I, I just, that makes me nervous. She doesn't need that working against her. Well, I mean, I, it may not work against <laughs> right. her. That they may be as fair-minded as anybody ever has been, but, but they may not be. You have to wonder. Well, I mean, she, she, you know, I've heard some of the, I mean, I've gone to college classes. I've heard professors lecture. Um, it's not very conservative. So, so in some of her classes, I've insisted of my, don't you let anybody know that your dad is a former Republican office holder because that could create, I don't think it will. But let's not even expose ourselves to that reality. But but if a if a university and a bureaucracy were as responsive as we would expect them or should expect them to be, nobody would ever call a board member. You normally call a board member because the university won't address whatever concern you may or may not have. Thank you, Betty. Appreciate the call. We just disagree a little bit there. That's fine. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. You know, we we had a debate for a long time what the definition of is is. I'm going to make a prediction, sort of a bold prediction. We will at some point in time debate what the definition of office mates is. That's where okay. we're headed. I mean, Jan Saki yesterday declined. Excuse me. She um. Well, she declined to answer the question, but she kind of spun it. And, and, um, but, but she did say they were never office mates. Talking about Hunter Biden, the laptop, and so some, of the, um, some of the revealed emails now. Oh, yeah, one of the suggest, emails talked about I mean, the, the keys for Joe, Jill. Saki was very strategic until she said they were never office mates. I think that's going to be, end up being a costly mistake for a press secretary that will probably be working at MSNBC by then. But as we progress down this road, as we find out more and more and revelations are made known, um, we're going to find out that if you – I mean, there's an email out there on Biden's laptop, Hunter Biden's laptop, that says, you know, make a, make a copy of a key for me, for him, for her, and for Joe. Now, now Saki said yesterday that they were never office mates. I think that is highly, highly questionable and will end up being, oh, it'll be in the back. What is an office mate? You know, is an office mate there 40 hours a week or does an office mate have a key? And trust me, this is where we're heading. 
If we can if we can argue about what the definition of is is, we can certainly <laughs> Thank you, Bill Clinton. We can certainly cloud distinguishment between office mates or not. Hmm. Yeah. Trust me, office mates okay. will be key. I'm ready. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know the old saying, be careful what you ask for? Well, when you think about limited government, and we argue about the the, the construct of limited government, how limited the government would be. Um, I mean, I, I think it's fairly well known amongst our listeners that I'm a big student and believer in um, the lot classical liberal. Um, I mean, it's, it's class, I mean, liberalism has been hijacked. I mean, classical liberalism is, uh, is really what Locke, I don't want to say invented, because who knows who, I mean, somebody came before Locke and probably had an influence on his philosophizing in the, uh, in the 17th century. But, um, but Locke was the first one that began talking about this, um, the, the, the doctrine of natural rights, the, uh, I don't know, property rights, uh, that, that if you do resist the government, it can be justified. Um, you're not always an anarchist. I mean, if you refuse to um, bow to the king, that always that ain't always a bad thing. Um, now, now, it was not implemented in a major way. Locke simply wrote and talked and, and lectured about it. Um, he, he was a big believer in the limits of political authority and had a big influence on Jefferson. But what if we lived in a world where political authority was absent? And it was the wild, wild west. It was anarchy. And I think all of us, or the majority of us listening to my voice, would accept that the Jeffersonian way of government was going to be better. Um, the, 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 the philosophy of limited government and, and personal empowerment and the ability for me and everybody else to live as they choose to live within a certain reasonableness. Now, now, now Jefferson and Locke believed that some of that reasonableness was interpreted by natural law, and that meant, read, that human beings have, we, we have a, an inclination. We, we possess this intrinsic quality or value that, that governs our reasoning and behavior. We don't need the law saying you can't kill people. We don't need the law saying you can't take things you don't own. But that, that's more philosophizing than it is. But, but what if we lived in a world where we depended on that and that alone, that natural law was the governing philosophy, that, that man was left to its own volition, and man um, entrusted its survival and fate to its ability to reason. And, and we didn't have laws that said, you know, murder is uh, illegal. We didn't have sentencing uh, guidelines for people who break the laws because, once again, we're all in. I mean, we're completely devoted to this, um, I don't want to call it anarchy, but in essence, that's kind of what we're, what we're talking about. Uh, I guess the argument I'm trying to make is, uh, and Tony made it yesterday, yeah, I don't like the way things are. I don't like central planning, and I don't like Washington telling me what I can and can't do. I don't like submitting myself to their authority. In fact, I don't a lot of times, and I've had examples in my life where I cause myself great, you know, um, great danger by refusing to acquiesce and give in. Uh, my wife says, you, you've got a problem. I mean, she really believes that. My wife says I need treatment because I won't bow to authority. I won't do what I'm supposed to do because the central planner says I'm supposed to do it. I despise it. I mean, I do. I don't despise the people in government. I understand they've got a role and a job to do. I, I certainly understand that. But I despise the notion. I detest the notion of a central government, uh, a big brother. I mean, I, I can't express to you how upset and, and bothered I get by that, especially when I hear something 
of a friend or myself who's going through a situation and you're dealing with government in some way, shape, or form. I mean, it gets my blood boiling. I mean, you're you're kind of smiling yeah. under your breath. I mean, you're smirking. But uh, I'm thinking about you and Tony agreeing on some things. Well, I mean, we, we agree a lot on that. But but I have accepted, wh- whether I should or not, I've accepted that there's going to be a government. And the government's going to have some authority over my life. So, so if I've accepted that the government's going to have some authority over my life, how can I try to undo some of what's already been done? I mean, do, do, do I, I mean, I don't fly a building into a, into a IRS building. I don't, I don't go to a clinic and bomb, you know, the, the DOR. I mean, we don't do that. I don't go to the EPA or OSHA or DHEC and, you know, start killing people. I mean, you don't do that. I mean, that, 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 there, there's no reason. There's no rationale to that. So how do we orderly and effectively resist the government? Um, the central government. I don't think the state does that. The local government, uh, it's getting it's getting there. I mean, the state and local government are getting more and more involved in the affairs of man. Um, school boards, you know, uh, the magistrates. I mean, imagine how many times you bump in to governing authority. I mean, in your life. I mean, just imagine Think something. Think about what we've been through the last couple of years. I mean, mask mandates, vaccine mandates. I mean, that's kind of ultimate big brother, right? Shutting down of businesses. Private businesses were shut down because the government said you can't run that business any longer. And the point, I, I mean, I guess the, uh, the argument I had with Tony yesterday is, Tony, I get it, man. I hear you. Now, I think it was unfair. I think he was, he was completely in total. It was a kick in the gut, kick in the groin, because Tony chose, and I'm saying this sarcastic, Tony chose to try and pit me against my political idol and hero, Thomas Jefferson. And I can never be opposite of Jefferson. Um, but, but I think when, when you read Jefferson, and he says, I mean, he did talk a lot about, I mean, he, 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 there's no question that Jefferson's fingerprints are all over the way we governed ourselves for the first 100, 150 years, not so much recently. I mean, I've joked around that the, the hinges on the, the casket at, uh, at uh, Monticello must be made out of titanium. Because Jefferson, I mean, I can't imagine him being proud of what we've done with the federal government and, and the way we've empowered the federal government. And, and we've, well, I mean, we've given in. I mean, we've, we've been conditioned to conform. That conformity led to kind of a, um, uh, okay, this is the way it's got to be. So you folks are in charge, C- kind of sort of tell us what to do. Um, so so this, this distrust of concentrated power that Jefferson had, um, this devotion he had to the ideals of limited government, but, but it was also the rule of law. And, and I go back and read Jefferson's comments after Tony and I discussed yesterday. I said, I got I to figure this out. I can't be, I mean, I can't be, you know, a bother. I can't be opposite of, uh, of Jefferson. He did. I mean, I think the most important words he ever wrote were life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. I don't know that there's any more important words outside of the Bible that have ever been written. I mean, the Magna Carta would have some comparison here. But I think outside of the Bible and God's word, I think life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness is probably as prophetic a words that have ever been written by a human being. But, but then he also said, governments are instituted among men. He didn't say governments should not be instituted by men. He said governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Let's rely on our human instinct and human qualities and, and human dignity or indignity to decide who deserves to lead this nation for this two years, this four years, this six years. Now, now, once again, I think Jefferson would vomit on the floor the second he went to Washington. 
and saw the monuments and saw the the bureaucracies and saw the layers of government and saw the influence it wields and, and saw the, the power it has sought um, since his demise and since Hamiltonians kind of, uh, and I, I would imagine the New Deal, post-Civil War. I mean, post-Civil War, the United States really gave in to more of a Hamiltonian essence of government. And, um, but but I, I just don't believe any of us could be comfortable. Maybe you could. I can't. In a, in a world where someone's allowed to have $3.2 million worth of cocaine, $80,000 in cash and a gun, and there not be any societal consequence to that. Um, th- th- there, there are certain um, assumptions that natural law makes, and, and one assumption is we know right from wrong. Intrinsically, we, we know. We can easily tell what's right and what's wrong, and I, I just don't think everybody has the same moral compass. I just, I'm, I'm sorry. I think religion comes into this, spirituality comes into this, um, secularism comes into this. And I think it's a very, very um, intellectual debate that most people aren't willing to have. Let's go to the phone. Here is Jimmy in Lake City. Morning, Jimmy. Good morning, Mr. Ken. Um, doing a great job as usual. Uh, been knowing you and your family and uh, pretty much all of your siblings for a long time. Um, I have two points on this issue with Mr. Tony. The first issue, um, and I hadn't heard it addressed, and maybe I missed it somehow or another, but the whole point of this thing is called illegal. Um, what these folks had were illegal uh, contraband, and we in society have to go by um, and laws and on our books, and it, it, that's part of our um, way of life. If not, then we're living in a society that um, will go down to tubes. And the other point is, for Mr. Tony, I think that he, um, if any of his family, children, grandchildren, had got hooked on some of these drugs um, that's coming into this country now, he might feel a little different towards some of that. Um, that's pretty much all I have. I'm doing a great job. Y'all uh, continue with the good work. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Kind of an interesting take there. And um, and I don't know how much Tony was trying to be provocateur. And once again, Rev, philosophically, I'm in that camp. I wish I lived in a world. It's a little bit like the, it's it's our version of Imagine. You know, we, we pick on the liberals for believing this John Lennon song, Imagine. Imagine there was a world where no heaven, no hell, no boundaries, no sovereignty, no difference in, in humanity. Okay, that, that would be one if we don't live there. And I just think to depend on human instinct. I mean, it's just, it's, this isn't the pride lens. You know what I mean? This is not the, um, what was it, the animal king? No, uh, lion king. You know, where... Um, kind of the circle of life perpetuates itself, and that's the way the, I mean, human beings are different. I think we're uniquely different. I think God has created in us the ability to reason and understand and comprehend things that other living, breathing species that he created cannot. And and I just, I, for the life of me, can't understand. I mean, I can't understand big government, and I'm totally opposed and offended and find it disgusting and detesting. Big government bothers me in a way that is probably unhealthy. But but nor can I get to a place where I think we simply depend on natural law. I think that's our version of imagine. Let's go to the phone. Josh in Darlington. Morning, Josh. Good morning. Um, I just have a couple of points. Um, it seems like you're touching around anarchy um, as if it's a bad thing. Um, it just simply means no rulers, not no rules, because natural law does, does matter. Mm-hmm. Like... Um, 
Uh, don't aggress upon your neighbor. Don't steal from them. Don't try to coerce them into doing anything they don't want to do. Um, and to the point of what we can't do to each other, what I as a human being can't do to another human being, there's no moral compass that says it is okay for us to elect 10 people, 20 people, 200 people, 5,000 people to go do the exact same thing. If I can't steal from you, 5,000 people can't steal from you, no matter where they call themselves a government or robbers. What, 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 what do we do if we didn't have a government? Let's say we lived in a world absent of political authority. What do we do? Who decides what's wrong? And what do we do to someone when you decide they did wrong, but, but I don't think they did? Um, I guess we have to go to our community and try to find um, people who are removed from the situation who have no moral or emotional ties to whatever this um, hypothetical problem is. And like we do now, go amongst our peers, plead our case, and let our peers decide what is right and what's wrong. And that's not political authority. Um, well, there's no one forcing it. Correct. It's all I mean, I, it's you're all right. I, mean, I, I get that. That's what I thought you were going to say. That's kind of an interesting take on it. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937 is our number. To me, it's a, it's a, it's a most stimulating question, and it came out of me being offended. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I was offended is I was, I was put at odds with Thomas Jefferson. And anytime I'm put at odds with Thomas Jefferson, I'm going to work overtime to make sure I'm not at <laughs> and odds. That's, and that's why Tony, I mean, he really did a day's work by sure calling and making that sure point yesterday. He did. Tony knew exactly what he, he was sure doing. He sure did. Trying to back me in a corner. That's and it impressive, worked. yeah. And it worked. And I'm out swinging he, he again. came out fighting I'm this back, morning. I'm back, you know, punching back today, Tony. <laughs> 843-661-0937 is our number. Um, so, so if the community are in charge... Um, is it survival of the fittest? Does the biggest, strongest, smartest get to decide? You know, um, if if we don't elect people, people elect themselves. Is that fair to say? Isn't that a dictatorship? Well, I mean, is, but I mean, in reality, if we don't if we don't politically right. elect someone, don't people kind of elect themselves? I mean, don't the biggest, baddest, most alpha male end up running the joint? I mean, that's just the nature of human beings. Some people are more ambitious than others. Some are more consumed or drunk with power than others. Um, some will fight a little harder. Some will stretch the rules, bend the rules, do whatever it takes. Uh, it's just it's kind of an interesting quandary. And the reason I think it's important that we have this discussion, the majority of us don't like what we've got. I mean, can I get an amen? I mean, I got to believe somebody in their car said amen. The majority of us listening to my voice right now don't like this top-down government. The, the president appoints all these committee chairs. These committee chairs pass all these regulations. These regulations apply to all of our lives, even the state government. I mean, when I was in Columbia, I can't tell you how many times the state government had its hands tied by, by the federal government. Here comes a mandate. Here comes an edict. Here comes an order. A um, little bit of money, maybe not. You know, but this is what we suggest. No, this is not what we suggest. This is what we command you to do. So, so it, it, we're, we're, we've all become... Uh, and some are comfortable with this, but we've all become to some degree subservient to a federal government, a central planner, something Jefferson found so disgusting, so distasteful, and so so very dangerous. So if we agree that that's not what we like, would we be better off with uh, borderline anarchy? Would we be better off with some hyper-capitalist model of economy that... um? 
that winners were more aggressive in pursuit of winning and lose. There's not anything out there to level and, and try to balance the playing field. I just think that's kind of an interesting debate to have. And it came out of a 3.2. Here's what I want to say. I don't care if we got big government or small government. Somebody with $3.2 million worth of cocaine, guns, and cash, they're doing something wrong. Or are they breaking the law? Is it unlawful? Is it illegal? I mean, we can play to semantics. To me, it seems like a threat to societal safety. Says who? That's it to me. Okay. But, but who are you? I mean, uh, you see where I'm headed. Yeah, I mean, no, it, I mean, I, I, I hear your argument. Sure. sure do. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Here is Jeff in Florence. Hello, Jeff. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hey, Jeff. Hey, listen, that, that cocaine had a purpose. It was going to Don Jr.'s house. I thought it was Hunter. <laughs> no, <laughs> that two peas in a pod. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but when, when you talk about, you just said, I don't know anybody who likes the government we have. No, I, I don't like the represented representation we have. Okay. The form of government we have is fine. You know, it's just... We are, we're not given the options we need to have for the leadership we should have. I mean, we're, we're all retreading these 70-plus-year-old men and women and just voting our person back in there because no real candidate has a shot to unseat an incumbent. You see it in the House of Representatives, but good Lord, look at the Senate. They don't turn people over. You know, Jeff, it, have, Jeff, have we abused the right to govern ourselves? I didn't say have we have we disqualified well, ourselves, but have we abused the right to govern ourselves? No, no, we've we've let the foxes in the hen house write the rules. Like so, when you talk about Jefferson, you know, rolling over in his grave or trying to kick the door open, it wouldn't be about becoming a Hamiltonian uh, system. It would be the fact that we allowed basically the robber barons, the and, and the corporations of the modern day ruling elite from England. Like if you look at the forms of government that the United States strove not to be, they wanted to be something different. They wanted to truly have um, a, a republic, not not in the way that. Uh, the ancients uh, in Rome and Greece had because they were ruled by the ultra-rich and the powerful. That that Senate they had was made up of the ultra-rich and powerful. That is what we have become. And so how do you get back to what Jefferson envisioned? You get back to a situation where ordinary citizens can become leaders and involved in our government. So you and I agree that we're bordering on a plutocracy, and that is a, a government of and by the wealthy. At, at 100%. Okay, we agree and, there. We, we absolutely agree there. Yeah, that is our problem. Uh, what we have as a government is not our problem. It's our participation and what we will accept as citizens that is the problem. Well, explain. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it, my man. So, so Jeff and I talked for... I mean, he took a shot at Don Jr. I think a shot at Hunter. But yeah. other than that, we kind of, um, we were singing off the same sheet of music. I've argued that for about 10 years, that that we are, we're in the realm of plutocracy. I mean, I don't know if we officially, I mean, we vote our elected leaders. You know, uh, no wealthy person goes and steals the right to govern. They, they don't, they, ah, let me, it's kind of interesting. Do, do they, do they buy the right to govern or not? 
I, I think they do. I think Jeff would agree. Yeah, corporate. Our, our government is too heavily weighted toward those who have access to wealth. Wealth is too critical and too important and too rewarding and in a form of government that was too, I mean, basically our government was born out of what? Being offended by those very things that I think we've transitioned into and become. Um, and, and that's why I think Jefferson would be so appalled by what, and Hamilton would probably be appalled to some degree. I don't think either of our founders, and the fundamental argument that Hamilton and Jefferson had was a limited government or not a central government or not. I don't think either one a government bought and sold by the wealthiest corporations and Americans. Okay. I mean, I, when I, when I criticize Hamilton or Hamiltonian philosophy, I'm criticizing kind of a top down way of governing a federal bank, central banks, um, you know, for debt, a lot of things that I think are dangerous to the prosperity of America and will eventually be our demise. But, but that's not what Jeff and I are discussing and in agreement on. I think, you know, um, an elite or ruling class of people whose power derives from the wealth they invest in our in our form of government, I think Hamilton and Jefferson would be equally offended and bothered by that reality. Let me ask you this, and this kind of flies maybe in the face of something, a point that Jeff was making, but Donald Trump, I mean, he's a wealthy guy, obviously he had money and access and power and influence, et cetera, before he ran for president, but he was also sort of a little bit of the anti, I mean, he was against I'm trying to describe what what he did and what he attempted to do and really they fought back against was was sort of he fought against some of those those ingrained powers that we're complaining about, right? Yeah. I mean, Just, is, that, is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I, I think his message resonated with those who feel like I do. Um, I know a lot of people conflicted with Trump. They, they don't like Trump. They, 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 they think he's dangerous. They would never want him back in the White House. But they understand the universe of people he resonated with. I mean, we've had that conversation a hundred times. The Bernie Sanders voter, the Donald Trump voter, uh, the, the Ken and Jeff. I mean, Ken and Jeff don't agree on a lot. I think he enjoys arguing. I enjoy arguing. But but I think we both are on the same sheet of music when it comes to the the ability for wealth in America to influence a, a government of and for and by the power. I mean, that, that's not the way this thing was designed to work. And I think Jeff makes a valid point. The system of government's not broken the people we've allowed to buy it are the ones that have, have corrupted it to a point where many believe we need kind of a start over. And I think Trump kind of tried to point that out. Now, again, he's a wealthy guy, and well, I mean, he, 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 he was, always say he was achieving you know, power. I know how the game's rigged because I helped rig the game. Right? I mean, you remember that's one of the most revealing things. But he, he sort tried. of exposed some of that to the to the American public. Yeah, right? and, and and a lot of Republicans push back. Not only Democrats, but a lot of Republicans push back. That's true. Let's, let's take a break. We'll be back in just a second. Welcome back, 843-661-0937, our number, someone's on the phone, let's go there. Hugh in Florence, good morning, Hugh. Morning, guys, how are you doing this morning? Good morning. So just to kind of, I guess, sum up everything that we've been talking about this morning, or you guys have been talking about this morning, I think with, you know, Jefferson and the Founding Fathers and um, their goal with the government body as far as congress was concerned was it was supposed to be a service to the people not a career <clears throat> and you know ultimately they didn't think anyone would want to work past the age of 70 i mean i know i don't want to work past the age of 70 so you know that kind of i guess just to sum up what you guys have been talking about as far as that you know jefferson and what they wrote and how they were almost got everything right as far as how they lay down the foundation for the body of government. But I think they could have done a little bit better on, you know, setting um, terms like with 
how we figured out we needed to do that with the president presidency. Um, and then to go into kind of what Tony's been saying about, you know, uh, in, in my opinion, there's one rule that can kind of outweigh all the other ones, and it's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would do unto yourself. And cocaine wouldn't have value, a $3.2 million value, if it wasn't intended to be used. So that was intended to be used and harm somebody else. And, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be hooked on cocaine. So, anyways, that's all I had to say. Thank Thank you. you. Appreciate that. You know, uh, talking about the golden rule, I mean, to some degree, all societies, I don't care where you live or what's – uh, and watch why you conduct yourself. I mean, you know, Jeff and I disagree a lot on this show, and it's kind of fun for him, and I think it's fun. For, well, I, I know it's fun for me, and I think it's fun for him. But but I think we all agree that a society with no social contract is dangerous. Now, now we can argue about what limits the social contract should have. You know, uh, does Jeffersonians believe that it should be limited, and uh, the social contract should uh, entrust more powers to the individual and liberties and freedoms abound uh the the hamiltonians would say yeah but i mean we've got this big country and a lot of matters to address and we got poor people and uh you know i mean uh, the government's kind of got to take on some of these challenges but it's still a social contract rev asked an interesting question about the difference in anarchist and natural law and from what i've gathered and i'm certainly no expert on this the the anarchist um believes that natural law has a it's more man-made now anarchy's um organic it doesn't need anything i mean you know it's a little bit like christianity uh my pastor used to say when you add something to the cross it becomes man's religion you know the 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 cross offers salvation why do we need to hang an ornament on it but human beings tend to be inclined to do we can make it a little better I mean, yeah, it's, it's God's word, but we can make it a little bit better. You know, so let's add this to the cross. Let's add that. To the, that becomes religion. I mean, to me, that's not, that, that's not Christianity. That's religion. Well, the, the anarchist believes that those who ascribe to natural law have added a little something to it that doesn't need to be in there. Now, it's extreme. I mean, that both, both um, versions of government are, are pretty extreme, but, but you know, th- there is a fundamental debate. And talking about the Constitution, Jefferson believed that a nation should rewrite its Constitution periodically. I think his number might have been 19 years. I have no idea where he came up with that 19 years, um, but I'm sure some historian does. But but Jefferson believed that, you know, well, I mean, they, the, the founders talking about it isn't perfect. The Constitution not perfect. You know what it is? They, they left the ability to amend it. So, so, you know, in other words, they left the door open. If you guys believe that we're off track here, Amend the Constitution. I mean, we're, you know, we're doing this in in the late 1700s. There will be a day in 2022 where government prints, you know, trillions of dollars it doesn't have, and you know, squanders away prosperity and abuses capitalism in a way we never imagined. And, and the people at that time should have a right to elect people willing to amend the Constitution and, and adjust accordingly. Um, that's a heavy lift. They meant it to be a heavy lift. But if people get that desperate. If people get that concerned, if Jeff and I say, hey, man, well, let's don't argue about the things we don't agree on. Let, let, let's kind of go down this um, this plutocracy road and let's limit the um, the influence wealth can have in the way we govern ourselves. Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, the founders always said that this would only work with a moral population, and, you know, they said that 
we have a republic if we can keep it. And and that's so true today. And you see the first thing everyone wants to do is push out God. You know, they started that back a long time ago, getting rid of God in schools and public. And, and all we have is two laws. If we went by those two laws, everything else would take care of itself. I mean, look at what they're trying to do now. Like, I'm hearing a advertisement about opening liquor stores on Sunday. What, you, you can't buy enough on Saturday to hold you over to Sunday? I mean, it, and you go in the Bible and you see where the Lord was giving them manna while they left Egypt and told them collect every day except for the Sabbath, and it'll spoil if you do. But they still tried to collect on Sunday, and it wasn't there. So we, we like you said earlier, we keep interjecting stuff to religion and adding purple stuff to the cross and all this. We don't need to add it. We need to take it in its basic form. Of, okay, the libertarian can say that guy with all them drugs, that's his right to have it in a libertarian world. But the minute he tries to sell it to a nine-year-old or a 15-year-old, that's against the laws that as a population, we said, you know, that's immoral. So and everybody's saying, what's your definition of morality? Well, once you get away from that, we're done as a nation. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. You know, I'm a Baptist. I grew up at First Baptist Church in Pamplico, South Carolina, where I was baptized, where I was married. Um, I was I had a drug problem early in life. My mama drug me to church on Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night. I have strayed a bit as I've gotten more mature and older. And when we, you know, I heard the beer argument, you know, the, the alcohol of it. I've heard that all my life. Um, well, uh, he's a philanderer. He's he, he embezzled. Ah, he didn't drink. He didn't drink. I mean, there's always been this burden in, in the Southern Baptist in particular about drinking. Um, Joe was talking about selling beer on Sunday, selling alcohol on Sunday. Um, you know what my response to that is? Um, should we sell donuts on Sunday? I mean, should we sell sugar bombs, which is a donut? I mean, 350 calories and, you know, enough sugar to make you high for a week. Should we sell those on Sunday? We, we allow people to make choices. I, I'm not opposed at all and never have been about buying alcohol on Sunday. I grew up in a Baptist church. It doesn't bother me a bit in the world. Uh, in fact, if I was, if you could buy beer in a grocery store on Sunday in Florence and I wanted one, I'd go get it. I mean, I'm not going to apologize for that. Uh, you know, you go. You mean to tell me you'd go to grocery? You'd go to man. You'd walk in a grocery store on Sunday morning and buy a six pack of beer. Yeah, if I wanted it, I would. Uh, you gonna buy that six pack? I mean, those a dozen donuts? Because the argument is, it's not good for you. A lot of things we do aren't good for us, but but it's not up to government to say. I mean, that that's really the extreme uh, modern day liberal position of government forcing. Remember, Mayor um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the New York Mayor uh, Bloomberg. When he, he wanted to stop selling 32-ounce drinks. Oh, yeah. Remember the big gulp law? Right. In other words, he said, um, 16 ounces of Pepsi is enough. Says who? Says me. Because we're in this together. We're trying to make you um, healthier and, and more fit. So you can't buy a 32-ounce, you know, big gulp of Pepsi. Um, you can only buy 16 ounces 
at a time. I just, I mean, I, I do have a, a, tr- a tremendous libertarian bias about me. But, but, and I, I'm going to tell you this, I mean, this will be bizarre and probably out of character. I don't have a problem with people snorting cocaine. I mean, that, that's your business. I mean, it, but, but, but $3.2 million guns and cash, that's another animal. It becomes a breach of the social contract. If you want to go home and snort cocaine and, and destroy your life and brain cells and all those things that go along with it and don't pose a threat or menace to society, I'm okay with that. I mean, I don't want it around me, but I'm okay with that. I mean, if, if, if the guy down the street decides that he wants to be a cocaine addict, and he locks himself at his house, and he goes, you know, he snorts cocaine on his own time. He doesn't hurt or harm anybody. Um, pays his bills. He stays, you know, uh, an otherwise good uh, member of the community. Have at it. I mean, that, that's the libertarian bias in me. But when you have $3.2 million worth and guns and cash, it's obvious your intent is a violation of the social contract. I don't think somebody snorting cocaine is a violation of the uh, social contract. I think somebody trying to sell cocaine to anybody that may or may not harm themselves is a breach or a violation of the um, the self-imposed social contract that we call our government. Take a break. Back in a minute. Nothing like a little come on, Eileen, to get us out of this serious mood, right? There you go. One hit wonder. It's a good one, too. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here is Tony in Sumter. Good morning, Tony. Morning, gentlemen. How are y'all today? Hey, Tony. How are you? Uh, Ken, you said something about uh, maybe not legalizing, but you had no objection to someone doing hard drugs. And, and I find myself, and in, in, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, which is not necessarily against you personally, but what I don't want is somebody to take drugs, fry their brains, screw themselves up so bad that they need medical attention, and then stand there with their hands out and expect me to pay for it. I, that's, that's the one thing. I mean, I've never done drugs. Well, I lied. The one time I did, that's the best night's sleep I had. I was in Texas, and I got talked into trying a marijuana joint. <laughs> and, that, and that was really that was the best night's sleep I ever had, but she wasn't really happy. Anyway, I digress. Uh, but seriously, I mean, anybody that, I don't care if they're black, white, pink, or yellow, stands there and expects me to pay for them to be um, treated for drug abuse. No, I know. You, you made the conscious decision to do this thing to yourself. And I don't see where you should expect or could expect anyone else to help you get off of it. Your turn. No, no question about it. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. I mean, I share that sentiment. I mean, you know, and, and and this is where we all talk out both sides of our mouth, right? I mean, the limited government enthusiast says, I don't think the government should tell someone whether or not they need to, to snort a powder up their nose that may destroy their lives. That's not the role of government. Or how about the limited government enthusiast that says, I don't think you should be able to buy alcohol on Sunday. Correct. Yeah, I mean, we all get, I mean, seriously, we all talk outside. I mean, let's let's just accept that as something we all have to deal with. We, we talk out both sides of our mouth. And if we, you know, if you try to be pure in the world of American politics, you'll find yourself conflicted uh, eternally. You'll always be a little bit confused about what you just said or what you may say. And that's perfectly acceptable. I think we get better politics 
when we accept that we contradict ourselves from time to time. We do. Uh, we, we aren't as pure as we seem. Our political perspectives are confusing, not only to us, but to, to those we're trying to address concerns of and, and deal with. I mean, once again, I agree with the caller. I don't have any problem with someone starting something there up their nose that may or may not destroy their lives as long as they're not hurting anybody else. But the day they show up as a Medicaid patient to a publicly funded hospital is a day they become my problem. I mean, it's not my problem at all if Rev decides to snort cocaine and stay in his home and destroy his life. That's his business. But, but once Rev says, I need medical help, and he goes as a Medicaid patient, that's when it becomes our business. So, I mean, that, that's, that's complicated. Back in a minute. You know, we're talking about what kind of government, how much government, who's in charge of the government. Uh, a lot of this is political theory. It's, it's political philosophy. It's, um, I mean, there are no exact answers. And I think a lot of problem with American politics is we pursue for an exact answer. And it's a complicated process. I mean, the founders knew that when we entrusted man to govern their their fellow man, it was going to be complicated. It was going to be difficult. It's going to be heavy lifting. Um, And some believe in the virtue of government. Others do not. I like to say this about my liberal friends because I don't want to be argumentative with them. I don't want to dislike them and them dislike me. But I'll just, we'll kind of end up, I'll say, you're just more sympathetic to government than I am. That's kind of a, um, that's a, that's a kind way to say, um, I don't know why you trust government the way you do, or you want government to be in control of the things you wanted to be in control of. So I just refer to, you're just a little more sympathetic to government than I am. I'm highly skeptical of government. I suggest you do or be uh, the same way. Hey, so somebody who's trying to be a part of our government, one story I want to make sure we get to, because it's very interesting to me. Because uh, I'm kind of a, um, a bromance with J.D. Vance. I've <laughs> disclosed that publicly, so no shame there. Um, February 19 is, uh, that, that was a few days before Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. J.D. Vance said, and, and it became very controversial in the Ohio Senate primary, uh, I got to be honest with you, I don't really care what happens to Ukraine one way or another. That was the blurb in the media. Um, he was punished tremendously in the polling in Ohio. In fact, his numbers went down seven or eight percentage points. Um, I went back and listened to the entire podcast. It's on Steve Bannon's podcast. He was a guest. Uh, they're kind of an America First originals, so to speak. I mean, they would be in the um, they would be in the upper crust of America Firsters. Bannon, a former Goldman Sachs executive. Um, J.D. Vance, a Yale-educated lawyer, made money in, in venture capital, um, but wrote Hillbilly Elegy, talking about his roots and where he comes from. Um, but then he said, because I wanted to hear that, something had to come after that. And here's what he said following, uh, I got to be honest with you, I don't really care what happens to Ukraine one way or another. I'm sick of Joe Biden focusing on the border of a country I don't care about while he lets the border of his own country become a total war zone. Hmm, okay. He's making contrast there. There, there may be a point to be made um, there. So um, when you look at the polling, Republicans overwhelmingly support military aid to Ukraine. They support some of the, uh, some of the sanctions, some of the very harsh sanctions against Russia. Um, Vance is not spoken much about those issues. In other words, he's basically 
I don't want to say he's been a purist because that's hard to be, but he's been one that has been kind of consistent in, um, you know, Ukraine and Russia and their border dispute is the border dispute between Ukraine and Russia. I'm much more concerned and interested in the border dispute that we have um, with our neighbors to the south on February 23rd. Now, this is after Putin had delivered his speech um, about this. Um, I think his words were special military operation in Ukraine. Um, Vance said again on Tucker Carlson's show, Ukraine, this Ukraine crisis has nothing to do with our national security. We would be much better served, Tucker, if our, pe- our people would be safer if we declared the Mexican cartels a terrorist organization focused on them and let Ukraine and Russia figure out what's in Russia and Ukraine's business. Nailed it, as far as I'm concerned. Now, now I probably would have used a little um, more sympathetic word than I don't care. Um, if America is going to prioritize, then our priority should be the, the southern border of our own country rather than Ukraine and Russia. And the concern I've got is this America first movement is still easily swayed by traditional orthodoxies. In other words, Republican voters have historically been hawkish. We, we've criticized the left because they're too dovish. They're not serious about military spending. They believe in this John Lennon world of imagine and nobody wants to build nuclear weapons and nobody will build Black Hawk helicopters and Javelin missiles. And why are we wasting all that money? Well, that doesn't mean you're a Russian sympathizer or a Putin supporter or a Putin apologist. It just means that our interest should lie on our southern border. Um, the, the way my father would look at it, if you've got all your stuff buttoned up, then yeah, you know, pay attention to that. Um, you know, if you've got if you've got your house paid for, go finance a four wheeler or a boat. If you don't, kind of keep your priorities uh, in order. And I, I just think Vance really and truly is getting unfavorable treatment here now once again uh jd and i have a bromance um he's somebody i i I really want to be a part of this american first movement because i think he adds a level of intellectual grit and seriousness that at times is lacking where do you think his chances stand now as far as getting elected not very good not very good and the reason it's not very good is not because of what he said but how he said it um we're still once again rev as much as we believe as a republican electorate we've changed and out with the old in with the new out with some of the old in with some of the new is kind of where we are and when we are challenged when republicans patriotism is challenged um in other words if we are going to engage in some capacity in ukraine it's unpatriotic to not support the American men and women of the military who will carry out these endeavors, whether they're flying planes to Poland or delivering goods to you, however they get, you know, the assistance there. Um, they're participating with the NATO nations in providing aid and assistance. And Republicans feel somewhat unpatriotic if we don't support those efforts. I think there are a lot of us who agree with J.D. Vance. I mean, raise your hand if you're a Republican voter or an American who cares more about the southern border than the, you do the Ukrainian-Russian border? I think it's more in our immediate security interest, without for question, sure. Without question. You could argue that there is no security concern of ours when it comes to Ukraine and Russia. But, but I do care about the atrocities and things that are happening in Ukraine. Without question. And you know where that comes from? You want to go back to the previous segment? Natural law. I mean, there's, some, there's something instinctive in you 
that, that knows that's wrong. You don't need a lawyer telling you that's wrong. You don't need a legislative delegation telling you that's wrong. You see somebody bound and blindfolded and dead laying in the street, something's wrong there. Now, now we, can, we can disagree whether it's some propaganda and Ukraine's behind some of this. It's still wrong. I mean, an innocent human being is laying in the street, you know, bound and killed. And, yeah, I mean, the, 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 you, you don't need anybody in charge to tell you something doesn't make since there but i think what jd vance i mean his his stance on ukraine has become kind of the impediment to him getting elected to the senate in ohio it's unbelievably unpopular with republican voters in ohio and i it bothers me that you know he may sink his campaign on something that most of us believe in because it was so ineloquently spoken and he's a kind of eloquent guy i mean he's a very bright man and um, and I don't know where he goes from here. Uh, I don't think he can win. I'm going to answer your question. You asked a second ago. I think there was a, a trajectory forward, and I think he was on a path to being maybe the front runner. And I think he squandered some of that with um with a stance that a lot of people believe in and a lot of people agree with. I want to read it again. Um, I got to be honest with you. I don't really care what happens to Ukraine one way or another. Whoa. I mean, I think the initial reaction. Whoa, JD. What's up with that? But then he follows. I'm sick of the. I'm sick of Joe Biden focusing on the border of a country I don't care about, while he lets the border of his own country become a total war zone. To me, that is an America First candidate. I mean, that's as America First as it gets. Now he goes on with a little red meat later when he says, you know, um, we would be much better served, Tucker. Our people would be much safer if we declared the Mexican cartels a terrorist organization focused on them and let Ukraine and Russia figure out what's in Russia and Ukraine's business. That's, I mean, to me, very appropriate. Yeah, and I think you're right. It's the words, I don't care, that are a little bit off-putting. So what would have been better? As a Republican voter in Ohio, what could you have tolerated or, 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 or given him the benefit of the doubt on? Had he said, as a matter of priority, I mean, how about that? I mean, had he said... um, as a matter well, the, of the contrast, first of all, is very appropriate uh, for you know what the president does or doesn't do, or the policy of the administration about not caring about our border and seems to be more worried about the border between Ukraine and Russia. But when you say I don't care, it it does sound like you don't care about you know the the war crimes and all the terrible stories we're hearing, or about you know a, a, a sovereign country being invaded. I it's, mean, it's 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 all it's a bright man running for office who's never run for office before. It was a political misstep. It was a, it was a political misstep by a man who's never done this before. The right way to handle this, you ready? This nation has to prioritize. As a matter of priorities, I'm far more concerned about the Mexican drug cartels invading our nation on our southern border than I am the Ukrainians and Russians trying to decide what part of the Donbass region should belong to whom. That's how you win a Senate seat. Yep. And it frustrates me that people much brighter than I, much more educated than I, make these silly uh, impromptu mistakes when it's, it's, there is no way in this world that I would have ever, I don't know how to fix my mouth to say I don't care. But he did. Now, now there's some benefit of the doubt, and, and there's some, I mean, I've read some things where, uh, I'm trying to think of who said it. Might have been Teal. You got to respect the guy for, you know, shooting you straight. I mean, there's some belief that, uh, despite it being uh, um, crass and crude, it was matter of fact. And but but it, it can't get away with that. And I don't think. I mean, I've seen his polling. He's recovered slightly. And the reason he's recovered slightly is some of the um, super PAC money has been spent to try to paint him in a more positive light. 
But um, but no, I think he sunk his. I think he sank his campaign uh, with a single statement that was so not careless, but politically immature. There you go, politically immature. Um, you got to be careful when you address these things because as a Republican, they're going to be spun, they're going to be misinterpreted. They're, they're going to you're going to get half the story. And and I would argue that the majority of Republicans in Ohio don't even know that Vance had a second part to that. I mean, all they've heard is, I mean, you, you kind of nod your head. You've probably heard him say, I don't care. I mean, that's that the takeaway. It. That's the soundbite. And, and nobody wants a senator that doesn't care. I mean, they, these are human beings, and they're bound, and they're blindfolded, they're killed, they're maimed. Um, they're, they're being, you know, obliterated from the planet Earth. And we got a guy who says, I don't care. But that's not the entire story. But he made such a strategic mistake, and I don't know uh, that he can recover. It's interesting. This article is in the National Review. And the National Review, we, we've said before, is not the biggest friend to the America First movement. They're coming around. And I, I think they've accepted to some degree reality of where it appears we're headed. But they're still not jumping up and down saying Trump 2024, J.D. Vance for Senate, because these guys are, uh, they're, they're kind of, um, the, 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 the America First movement is not an incrimination of liberal, um, of the liberal ideology. The America First movement is an incrimination of the failures, or basically a, um, it's, it's a manifestation of the failures of the Republican Party for about half a generation. Since the George H.W. Bush interventionist globalist doctrine became kind of the political norm in the Republican Party, that's, I mean, th- this is Trump and J.D. Vance and Peter Thiel, th- they were not brought on the political scene because, re- excuse me, Democrats became five-star liberals. I mean, the, 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 the Republican Party's base voter began looking for someone that they believe gave them a better chance to execute policy and enact legislation to get things done in the name of, uh, of America first. Uh, it kind of it morphed into America first to begin with. It was just simply populism. And out of that came this um, powerful energy within the GOP. I love it when people say, well, Obama gave us Trump. Ah, Obama is one contributing factor to us having Trump, but I'm convinced that George W. Bush and Mitt Romney and John McCain had more to do with giving you Donald Trump than Barack Obama did. Um, you can't hold the deity responsible for human affairs. I mean, he um, did, did Obama drive to the White House, fly to the White House, or just show up, you know, magically at the White House? Because you know he's a deity, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm, just, I'm asking yeah. the question. I mean, you know, you. Did, did he drive, did he fly, or did he just show up <laughs> out of thin air? at the White House, as Jesus did in the New Testament. Let's go to the phone. Here's Sam in Darlington. Hey, Sam. Hey, morning, uh, Ken and Dave. Um, what what uh, y'all were just talking about, about the J.D. Vance saying he didn't care, um, I think maybe that is a, a, a little bit of a weakness of the American First Movement. Uh, it's not so much that we don't care. I, I certainly wouldn't say that about about it. I do care about the people of Ukraine, and I don't like what we're doing, uh, what the United States is doing, because the United States foreign policy establishment is using Ukraine as a proxy weapon against Russia. 
And so, I mean, this this war doesn't have to happen. It's not because Putin is mad at Ukraine. It's because Putin is mad at the United States, or or he's he he feels like you know he feels uh, threatened by the United States, frankly. And uh, and so um, and so we our our you know foreign policy elites up there uh they think nothing is is going to do but we've got to defeat and change the regime in Russia and uh and I think that's that's not only extremely um arrogant but uh but it's 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 not in the interest of the Russian people either I know they say it is but but it's not in the interest of the a lot of Russian people kind of like Putin, and mainly, mainly the ones that live in the countryside rather than in the big cities. Um, you know, it's just uh, it's just arrogant, and it's it's not caring about the welfare of the people of Ukraine. That's all I. Sam, know. let me ask you a question. I'd love to get yeah. your opinion on this on J.D. Vance. Yeah. Um, I believe that the majority of Republican voters, primary voters are leaning non-interventionist. I mean, I think the the majority of Republican voters ascribe to this America First agenda in some way, yeah. shape, or form. The majority of that is based on kind of a, uh, let, let's let's stay home. Let's take care of business around here before yeah. we stick our nose in places around the world. So so if J.D. Vance embodies that and represents that, then, then why is this a big misstep? It's almost like we say we believe in something, but we question what we really believe in when it's time to put up or shut up. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I think it's uh, my thinking is has been formed a lot by a man named Andrew Basevich, a retired Army colonel, and became a history professor, and he has written some devastating critiques of American foreign and military policy. Uh, he he says it's it's a militaristic uh, kind of foreign crusading mindset it's it's been in to some extent part of american thinking uh, one one uh one uh one channel or one variant of american thinking about its role in the world from early on you know but it after world war 2 during world war 2 it morphed into the idea that that we've got to rule the world sort of like Britain ruled the world, you know, and uh, to to an extent, and we got to do like that, and we got to, you know, <clears throat> if somebody somewhere is doing something we think is not in our interest, what whatever that might mean, um, then <clears throat> then we have to we have to go change their regime, and, and so this is a deep philosophical thing, it, it, it and it goes back to. Limited government is is limited government a good thing? Uh, then then why is it not limited government in foreign affairs as well as domestic affairs? Yeah, yeah. well explained. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate the call. Um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Sam and Jeff would be skeptics of some of my opinions, respectfully. I mean, they they're very respectful the way they um, are skeptical of some of the things that I believe in. But uh, Jeff and I have had. Um, some agreements here recently, as Sam and I have, and I think the fundamental arrangement of this, uh, I'll call it a trifecta between Jeff and Sam and myself, 
is just a, a waning trust of our government, just a lack of belief that our government is there to actually, you know, police the nation's affairs in a way that benefits the, the average citizen. Sometimes they're a little more sympathetic toward government well, than you are. And I, and, I, and I respect that. I don't appreciate it. I don't agree with it, but I respect that. But it's, there's a sentiment in both of their voices that, that, that you've got to interpret as skeptical of what's happening in our nation's capital. No matter if Democrats or Republicans are in charge. Take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. It's time now for the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. Call 803-720-5260. So, what are you whining about today? Hey, good afternoon, guys. I uh, listened to your show this morning about transgendered athletes and Herschel Walker. I was wondering, when you meet Herschel, maybe you can find out his poodle name before he became a bulldog. We'd all like to know. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. You know, it's interesting. Um, they took a vote this week in the South Carolina House of Representatives on uh, the allowing or not of transgender athletes. And look who voted yes and no. It's very interesting to me who voted um, to who voted against a bill that was going to disallow men from competing against women in women sports. I mean, it's, 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 it's men disguised as women but it's still a man. It's still a dude um, trying to compete against women in female athletics. Um, and, and I want to say this, Rev, real quick. You know why people like Herschel Walker and J.D. Vance have a chance to be U.S. Senators? Why? Because of the nonsense. I mean, you know, we can complicate politics as much as you choose to. And some is very complicated. I mean, at times, politics becomes 4D chess. But a lot of times, it's not. And Herschel Walker becomes more relevant and more relevant and more relevant and more electable and more electable and more electable when we start discussing in serious fashion whether an eight-year-old should be allowed to enter into a medical contract to have a sex change and whether a dude disguised as a woman should be able to compete in athletic events. That's when Herschel Walker has a chance because he comes across as what? A practical man. Herschel said about transgenderism because with the event I went, you know what he said? Why are we even talking about this? I mean, why, why are we even having a legitimate adult conversation? Almost Twilight Zone. Well, I mean, and that's why Herschel becomes relevant. That's why, you know, people are tired of complicating things that just simply aren't complicated. And that's the nature and the tendency of American politics. Hey, I love y'all, man. Y'all keep up the good work, okay? No problem. Keep up the good work. Is that a wine? We take compliments that's on that a, line, too, that, by that, the way. That's a resounding endorsement. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. I'd rather somebody tell us what we're doing wrong than tell... No, stop. Stop. <laughs> really? Yeah, we've heard you really? We, we've got a certain caller that partakes and, uh, and participates <laughs> late, late, late in his evenings, uh, especially when, when old Kato was here saying, hey, let me, let me, Mr. Kid, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know who you are mm-hmm. if you're listening. A different person during the day than you are um, late in the <laughs> evening after you've had some libations and enjoyment. Ducks quack for a living. Ducks get paid to quack. Quacking is their job. Master quackers make good money. America's highest paid master quacker is Dr. Fauci. Okay. 
if it looks like a duck, well, what is it? Quacks like a duck, walks like a duck. It probably is a duck. Yeah, it's a duck. We've not heard the name Fauci in quite a while. Um, why is that? His I message ba- stopped testing as well, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, he was the guy that was in, um, I mean, he was in control of everything for a period of time, and now he appears to be kind of um, gone his wayward or gone a, um, a different way than they had him. I mean, they had him as a, a center of influence early in the in the pandemic, not so much here here recently. We've got some uh, information with the FDA that I'll probably go into tomorrow. Good morning, Wake Up Carolina. Enjoying your show. Ken, glad to hear you start talking about amendment to the Constitution and amending an amendment. All these government regulations that we live by, none of them are an amendment to the Constitution. So therefore, they're unconstitutional because the government only has the power granted to them by the Constitution, which would need an amendment and ratification by two-thirds of the state to give them these powers to regulate and do all this craziness that they're doing. I mean, do you have Department of um, Energy? There's no amendment in the Constitution recognizing it. I, I hope you see where I'm going. I mean, I don't want to waste a bunch of time whining about this, Seth, but 90%, probably 99% of what the government does today for or against the American people is unconstitutional. And we just laying back. Rural America sees this, but most of the world doesn't see it. I mean, part of me is beginning to wonder if you see it, but I'm looking forward to hearing your show and um, seeing if you get there because this is craziness that none of these bureaucracies have been passed as an amendment to the Constitution. Y'all have a great day. Good morning. Great to wake up with Wake Up Carolina. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Now, that's a that's a whine. That's a rant. That's somebody who's had enough of the nonsense that he's having to deal with. All I'll say is this, and we'll get in the weeds a bit. For whatever reason, a while back, and I'd have to be careful to distinguish what time period it was, and, I, and I'll try to study on some of this, but but there, there was a period in time where the courts decided they were not going to rule against American presidents. And the American president has taken executive authorities and embellished that responsibility in ways that I think we should all be deeply offended. If you're a Republican uh, voter and you got a Republican president, you probably celebrate some of these executive authorities and executive um, privileges that they've taken advantage of. If you're a Democrat and Democrats in, in the White House, you're probably equally as enthusiastic about what they've tried to do. But in reality, uh, the caller is exactly right. I mean, the executive office was to be co-equal. It was not to be um, an office that creates, you know, administer. Excuse me, um, yeah, administrative agencies and and government bureaucracies. I mean, that was supposed to be kind of balanced out with the, with the co-equal branches of government, legislative and judicial. And judicial is not ruled against American presidents, and American presidents tend or, or seem to continue to overstep their bounds and their constitutional authorities. Um, the American president is the most powerful politician in the world. There, there's no doubting that, whether he's cognitively incoherent or not. I mean, it doesn't matter whether he's a narcissist or not. It doesn't matter whether he's a Democrat or Republican. The American president is very exclusive in his ability to say certain things that matter more than anybody else in the world. But, but the Constitution limits his abilities and authorities. 
and the the judges or the courts are there to say when a president get out, gets out of bounds, when he adds a layer of bureaucracy that is not constitutional, when he adds a government agency, when he adds a an agency that regulates in ways that violate people's rights and constitution. But the courts in recent time have said, Mr. President, you're the boss, so we acquiesce. And I think we need a, a court that says to a president, you can't do that. That's not constitutional. That responsibility belongs to the legislative branch of our government. But I don't see that happening anytime soon because we've got interpreters of the law in our judicial more so than um, executors of, of the law. You've been listening to the Wake Up Carolina Winer Live, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. You got something you want to whine about? Call anytime, 803-720-5260. It's the official and the original Wake Up Carolina Winer Line. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's held on. Let's go there. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. You're on. Good morning. Uh, I, I wanted to take it back just a little bit. Uh, the Sam's uh, uh, remarks on the on the situation we're in. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that uh, when we did the Lend Lease Act, Act and gave uh, uh, England all those destroyers when the uh, the Hitler was just wearing them out on the ocean waves with a, with their submarines. That when we gave them all those uh, those destroyers and supplies that uh, we didn't give them to them for free. Uh, Churchill offered us in exchange for that uh, free trading rights throughout the British Empire, which at that time stretched from the borders of China all the way around the world to South America, all the way around the world, and uh, gave us a tremendous leg up uh, starting in World War II and uh, and really gave us a head start and uh after the war but uh that that was given to us and uh in exchange for a bunch of uh supplies that kept uh, kept them from being overrun by the nazis now that but uh on on your uh, whiner line something caught my attention was uh they uh Bureaucracy is nothing. It is has become a fourth branch of government, and it it probably affects more people uh, directly and especially uh, small businesses and small uh, economic endeavors uh, than any other branch. And I don't know what we need with a Department of Energy if you're trying to kill uh, every kind of energy you can come across. And I don't, and I don't think we need a federal Department of Education. If the states want a Department of Education, let them have one. But uh, I don't think we need a federal Department of Education. That's just my view. Thank you, sir. Appreciate and, that. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate. It. I'm probably cutting him off, but I'm sorry. There talking about the uh, the British Empire. I don't know if many people know this or not. Um, I guess trying to understand history and reading about history and hosting a four hour radio show. Um, in the early 1900s, 1915, 1920, somewhere there about, don't hold me to this, but I mean, I know I'm pretty close here. Um, the British Empire had um, or held sway over about a quarter of the world's population 
and a quarter of the Earth's land surface. Kind of stew on that for a second. I don't know what the numbers are. I mean, how many millions of, of square miles, how many millions of people, but it was about one quarter of all the population in America were subservient to the British Empire, and about 25% of all the land mass in America was under uh, British Empire rule. That is probably um, the largest empire in history with, with probably the most global reach of any empire in history. I mean, imagine that 20, and look, don't hold me to those numbers because they, they aren't exact, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 and 25. Um, I want to say, I, I wouldn't dare guess what the, the acreage was, or the square mile, wouldn't measure an acreage. It would be how many square miles of British, of territory the British rule about 25% of all the land in America and about 25% of all the pot. That's crazy. Mm. I mean, that, that's crazy. Let's go to the phone. Our next caller is Bert in Florence. Hello, Bert. Good morning. You know, your, your whiner had a real good point about the, the, the laws getting passed because we essentially have – our presidents are not presidents. They're kings. So we just change kings now and then. They write whatever law they want to, and everybody – Acts like that's okay. I want to stand over there in the corner with the I don't care people. Because I have said from the start, that's not our land, not our war, not our business. So, I, 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 you know, I look at it as a I don't care pretty well sums it up. And as far as that empire business goes, I will argue with you that the U.S. is the largest empire in the history of the world, because we have some 900 bases around the world, and we tell the local population what they can do and can't do. In some cases, we tell them when they can't be on the streets. We control the entire planet with 900 bases around the world, and in all of those places, I'll also put that in the I don't care category. We should not be ruling the planet. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. That would be an interesting comparison. America at its peak controls how much of what goes on in the world, the British Empire at its peak. I mean, it would obviously be, be relative. You know, fewer people, fewer economic assets in the, in the 1913, 14, 15, somewhere between 1910 and 1920 was probably the, the crescendo of the British Empire. And um, yeah, that would be kind of an interesting mm -hmm. discussion to have. The British Empire at its height, the American imperialism at its height, what has more control over the um, the affairs of mankind on the planet Earth? Take a break. Back in just a minute. I want to make sure we touch on, as we um, conclude this Thursday morning edition of Wake Up Carolina, um, two things real fast. Um, I read a summary of the Fed March minutes. <laughs> Disturbing. Really? unbelievably disturbing. First of all, I shouldn't be surprised that you read them, but I'm interested to hear what you mean. There's a quasi-confessional that there is far more inflation than they ever imagined, and they don't have a clue what to do about it. I mean, imagine, you know, the moron from Pamplico has said, hey, man, you print all this money and pump it into the economy, you distort supply and demand. But but I'm not an, an economics, I'm not an economics major, nor am I an economist, you know, one of the Keynesian economists working at the Fed. Remember the numbers? 768 economists work for the Fed, 10.48 Democrats to every one registered Republican. That's, in essence, 10 Keynesian economists to every one classical economist. But but I read some of the uh, the summary. I don't understand 
uh, blow by blow the minute. Somebody gets real confusing. They, they speak in very highbrowed fashions, but I do understand the summary. I've trained myself to understand there's certain catchphrases and things to look for. They have terribly, horribly underestimated inflation, and they're going to have to be far more aggressive than you or I ever imagined in trying to tamp it down with raising interest rates. And it's going to be oh. fast. It's going to be probably half point at a time. That sounds painful. Yeah, but it's going to be. Well, I mean, if you're in the if you're in a market that is affected by what the cost of financing something is, I mean, the, the real estate business would be the classic example. Um, but they're going to be forced. I mean, they, I, I think they knew this for a long time. Nobody wanted to admit it because somebody heading up the Fed, Jerome Powell, said it's transitory. You know, no need to be alarmed and concerned. Um, every reason in the world to be alarmed and concerned. I don't like to be the the doom and gloom guy. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, we'll work through it the best way we know how. But the Fed has done a great disservice to you Americans by insinuating in, in an unbelievable fashion that this inflation would rear its head and it would quickly go away as we continue to print trillions of dollars and infuse billions of capital liquidity into an economy that is so flush it's unimaginable. So, so we'll delve into that and try to be more specific tomorrow and next week. Uh, the other thing I want to make sure we touch on before we get out of here and take our last break, um, we will have an abbreviated edition tomorrow of Wake Up Carolina. I have a pre-scheduled meeting, uh, a conflict of scheduling that is um, something I can't miss. I ain't going to miss. Um, so um, we're going to be out of here live and live in color at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, live from 6 to 8 recorded from eight until 10 till nine i, I mean you're, you're the guy in charge yeah, of we'll do an hour uh with best best we could find segments okay and then uh, put glenn beck's show on at nine so it'll be live tomorrow from six until eight um i've got a conflict i won't be here these guys are gonna be kind enough to let me out of here at eight o'clock so from eight to nine a recorded of a wake up carolina recording of wake up carolina from nine to ten uh the conspiracy theorist who cries a lot We'll be back on um, the airways. I'm beginning to, I kind of like Glenn Beck a little more mm -hmm. than I did. He's been right. Yeah, been a right lot. a lot. Hey, take a break. We'll be back to say goodbye. Opening day of the Masters, opening day of Major League Baseball. Yes, um, and yes. Two of the more cerebral and laid back sports, um, different than NASCAR or football or MMA fighting or some of the other um, more intense sports that I tend to gravitate toward. <laughs> but I'm a part of Americana, no doubt about it. Um, go Tiger. I've never been a big Tiger fan, but hey, it's exciting to have him back sure in is. the fold at Augusta. We'll talk tomorrow.